the Comte de Saint-Germain, The Secret of Kings, a monograph, by Isabel Cooper Oakley, an adult brain audiobook production, read by Graham Dunlop. Chapter 1. Mystic and Philosopher. The Theories of His Birth, High Connections, The Friend of Kings and Princes, Various Titles, Supposed Prince Ragozzi, Historic Traces at the Court of Ansbach, Friend of the Orloffs, Moral Character Given by Prince Charles of Hesse. He was, perhaps, one of the greatest philosophers who ever lived, the friend of humanity, wishing for money only that he might give to the poor, a friend to animals. His heart was concerned only with the happiness of others. Memoir de Monton, page 135, S.A. Le Landgrave Charles, Prince de Hesse, Copenhagen, 1861. During the last quarter of every hundred years, an attempt is made by those masters of whom I have spoken to help on the spiritual progress of humanity. Toward the close of each century, you will invariably find that an outpouring or upheaval of spirituality, or call it mysticism if you prefer, has taken place. Some one or more persons have appeared in the world as their agents, and a greater or less amount of occult knowledge or teaching has been given out. The Key to Theosophy, page 194, H.P. Blavatsky The Comte de Saint-Germain was certainly the greatest Oriental adept Europe has seen during the last centuries. Theosophical Glossary, H.P. Blavatsky Among the strange mysterious beings with which the 18th century was so richly dowered, no one has commanded more universal comment and attention than the mystic who was known by the name of the Comte de Saint-Germain. A hero of romance, a charlatan, a swindler, and an adventurer, rich and varied were the names that showered freely upon him. Hated by the many, loved and reverenced by the few, time has not yet lifted the veil which screened his true mission from the vulgar speculators of the period. Then, as now, the occultist was dubbed charlatan by the ignorant. Only some men and women here and there realized the power of which he stood possessed. The friend and counselor of kings and princes, an enemy to ministers who were skilled in deception, he brought his great knowledge to help the West, to stave off in some small measure the storm clouds that were gathering so thickly around some nations. Alas! His words of warning fell on deafened ears, and his advice went all unheeded. Looking back from this distance of time, it will be of interest to many students of mysticism to trace the life, so far as it may yet be told, of this great occultist. Sketches are to be found here and there from various writers, mostly antagonistic, but no coherent detailed account of his life has yet appeared. This is very largely owing to the fact that the most interesting and important work done by Monsieur de Saint-Germain lives buried in the secret archives of many princely and noble families. With this fact, we have become acquainted during the careful investigations which we have been making on the subject. Where the archives are situated, we have also learned. But we have not yet, in all cases, received permission to make the necessary researches. It must be borne in mind 
that the Comte de Saint-Germain, alchemist and mystic, does not belong to the French family of Saint-Germain, from which descended Count Robert de Saint-Germain. The latter was born in the year 1708 at Long le saunier was first a Jesuit and entered later in turn the French, Palatine, and Russian military services. He became Danish Minister of War under Count Struency, then re-entered the French service, and at the beginning of the reign of Louis XVI, he tried as Minister of War to introduce various changes into the French army. These raised a violent storm of indignation. He was disgraced by the king and finally died in 1778. He is so often confounded with his mystic and philosophic namesake that for the sake of clearing up the ignorance that prevails on the matter, it is well to give these brief details, showing the difference between the two men. Unfortunately, the disgrace into which the soldier fell is but too often attributed to the mystic, to whom we will now turn our entire attention. That Monsieur de Saint-Germain had intimate relations with many high persons in various countries is quite undeniable. The testimony on this point being overwhelming, that such relations should cause jealousy and unkindly speculation is unfortunately not rare in any century. Let us, however, see what some of these princely friends say. When questioned by the Herzog Karl August as to the supernatural age of this mystic, the Landgraf von Hessen Philips Barchfeld replied, we cannot speak with certainty on that point. The fact is, the Count is acquainted with details about which only contemporaries of that period could give us information. It is now the fashion in Cassel to listen respectfully to his statements and not to be astonished at anything. The Count is known not to be an importunate sycophant. He is a man of good society, to whom all are pleased to attach themselves. He at all events stands in close relation with many men of considerable importance and exercises an incomprehensible influence on others. My cousin, the Landgraf Karl von Hessen, is much attached to him. They are eager Freemasons and work together at all sorts of hidden arts. He is supposed to have intercourse with ghosts and supernatural beings who appear at his call. Herr Malvion, in spite of his personal prejudice against Monsieur, de Saint-Germain, is obliged to acknowledge the feeling of the Duke towards the great alchemist. For on his supposed death being mentioned in the Brunswick newspaper of the period, wherein Monsieur de Saint-Germain was spoken of as a man of learning, a lover of truth, devoted to the good, and a hater of baseness and deception, the Duke himself wrote to the editor expressing his approbation of the announcement. In France, Monsieur de Saint-Germain appears to have been under the personal care and enjoying the affection of Louis XV, who repeatedly declared that he would not tolerate any mockery of the Count, who was of high birth. It was this affection and protection that caused the Prime Minister, the Duc de Choiseul, to become a bitter enemy of the mystic, although he was at one time friendly to him since the Baron de Glichen in his memoirs says, Monsieur de Saint-Germain frequented the house of Monsieur de Choiseul and was well received there. The same writer, who later became one of his devoted students, testifies to the fact that Monsieur de Saint-Germain ate no meat, drank no wine, and lived according to a strict regime. Louis XV gave him a suite of rooms in the royal chateau de Chambord. 
and he constantly spent whole evenings at Versailles with the king and his royal family. One of the chief difficulties we find in tracing his history consists in the constant changes of name and title, a proceeding which seems to have aroused much antagonism and no little doubt. This fact should not, however, have made the public of the period dislike him, for it appears to have been the practice of persons of position who did not wish to attract vulgar curiosity. Thus, for instance, we have the Duke de Medici traveling in the years 1698 and 1700 under the name of the Comte de Siena. The Graf Marcolini, when he went from Dresden to Leipzig to meet Monsieur de Saint-Germain, adopted another name. The Cour Prince Friedrich Christian von Sachsen traveled in Italy from 1738 to 1740 under the name Comte Lausitz. Nearly all the members of the royal families in every country during the last century, and even in this, adopted the same practice. But when Monsieur de Saint-Germain did so, we have all the small writers of that period and later calling him an adventurer and a charlatan for what appears to have been practically a custom of the time. Let us now make a list of these names and titles, bearing in mind that they cover a period of time dating from 1710 to 1822. The first date is mentioned by Baron de Glichen, who says, I have heard Rameau and an old relative of a French ambassador at Venice testify to having known Monsieur de Saint-Germain in 1710, when he had the appearance of a man of fifty years of age. The second date is mentioned by Madame d'Adamar in her most interesting souvenir, Sir Marie Antoinette. During this time, we have Monsieur de Saint-Germain as the Marquis de Montferrat, Comte Bellamar or Aymar at Venice, Chevalier Schoening at Pisa, Chevalier Velden at Milan and Leipzig, Comte Soltikoff at Genoa and Leghorn, Graf Zarogi at Schwalbach and Triesdorf, Prince Ragosi at Dresden, and Comte de Saint-Germain at Paris, The Hague, London, and St. Petersburg. No doubt all these varied changes gave ample scope and much material for curious speculations. A few words may fitly here be said about his personal appearance and education. From one contemporary writer we get the following sketch. He looked about fifty, is neither stout nor thin, has a fine intellectual countenance, dresses very simply but with taste, he wears the finest diamonds on snuff-box, watch and buckles. Much of the mystery with which he is surrounded is owing to his princely liberality. Another writer who knew him when at Anspach says, He always dined alone and very simply. His wants were extremely few. It was impossible while at Anspach to persuade him to dine at the prince's table. Monsieur de Saint-Germain appears to have been very highly educated according to Karl von Weber. He spoke German, English, Italian, Portuguese, and Spanish very well, and French with a Piedmontese accent. It was almost universally accorded that he had a charming grace and courtliness of manner. He displayed, moreover, in society a great variety of gifts, played several musical instruments excellently, and sometimes showed facilities and powers which bordered on the mysterious and incomprehensible. For example, one day he dictated to him the first twenty verses of a poem. 
and wrote them simultaneously with both hands on two separate sheets of paper. No one present could distinguish one sheet from the other. In order to arrive at some orderly sequence, it will be well to divide our material into three parts. One, theories about his birth and character with personal details, some of which we have briefly noticed. Two, his travels and knowledge. Three, his political and mystical work. Beginning then with our first division, the theories about his birth and nationality are many and various, and different authors, according to their prejudices, trace his descent from prince or tax-gatherer, apparently as fancy dictates. Thus, among other parentages, we find him supposed to be descended from 1. The widow of Charles II, King of Spain, the father of a Madrid banker. 2. A Portuguese Jew. 3. An Alsatian Jew. 4. A tax-gatherer in Rotundo. 5. King of Portugal, natural son. 6. Franz Leopold, Prince Ragozzi of Transylvania. This last seems to have been the correct view according to the most reliable sources that have been found and other information to which we have had access on this point. This theory is also held by George Hezekiel in his Eben Turlich Gesselin, I-35, Berlin, 1862. Karl von Weber, Opt-Sitz I-318, also says that Monsieur de Saint-Germain openly appeared in Leipzig in 1777 as Prince Ragozzi, and that he was often known as the Graf Sarogi, which latter is merely an anagram for Ragozzi, Ragozzi. This last fact we have verified in another interesting set of articles to which we shall later refer, written by a person who knew him at Anspach under the name Sarogi. Another writer remarks, his real origin would perhaps, if revealed, have compromised important persons. And this is the conclusion to which, after careful investigation, we have also come. Prince Karl of Hesse, writing of Monsieur de Saint-Germain, says, some curiosity may be felt as to his history. I will trace it with the utmost truthfulness according to his own words, adding any necessary explanations. He told me that he was 88 years of age when he came here, and that he was the son of Prince Ragozzi of Transylvania by his first wife, a tequili. He was placed when quite young under the care of the last Duke de Medici, Gian Gaston, who made him sleep while still a child in his own room. When Monsieur de Saint-Germain learned that his two brothers, sons of the Princess of Hesse, Vonfried Rheinfels, had become subject to the Emperor Charles VI and had received the titles and names of Saint Carl and Saint Elizabeth, he said to himself, Very well, I will call myself Sanctus Germano, the Holy Brother. I cannot in truth guarantee his birth but that he was tremendously protected by the Duke de Medici, I have learnt from another source. Another well-known writer speaks on the same point, an author, moreover, who had access to the valuable Milan archives. We refer to the late Cesar Cantu, librarian of the Great Library in Milan, who in his historical work, Illustri Italiani, 2.18, says, the Marquis of San Germano appears to have been the son of Prince Ragozzi, Ragozzi, of Transylvania. He was also much in Italy, 
Much is recounted of his travels in Italy and in Spain. He was greatly protected by the last Grand Duke of Tuscany, who had educated him. It has been said that Monsieur de Saint-Germain was educated at the University of Siena. Madame de Genlis, in her memoirs, mentions having heard of him in Siena during a visit that she paid to that town. The whole life of Monsieur de Saint-Germain seems to have been more or less shadowed by the political troubles and struggles of his father. In order to understand this, we must take a brief survey of his family history, a survey which will moreover give us some clues, helping us to unravel the tangled web of mysterious elements which surrounded the life and work of the great occultist. Few pages of history are more deeply scored with sorrow, suffering, and impotent struggle than those which tell the life story of the efforts of one Ragozi after another to preserve the freedom of their principality and to save it from being swallowed up by the rapidly growing Austrian Empire under the influence of the Roman Church. In an old German book, Genealogisch Archivarius Os Dem Jar, 1734, page 409-410-438, Leipzig, a sketch is given on the death of Prince Ragozzi, of his family, his antecedents and descendants, from which we will quote some leading facts. Francis Leopold Racozzi, or Racozzi, according to the later spelling, the father of the famous mystic, made ineffectual efforts to regain his throne, the Principality of Siebenbergen. The Ragozzi property was wealthy and valuable, and Prince Francis, grandfather of the mystic of whom we are writing, had lost his life in a hopeless struggle to retain his freedom. On his death, his widow and children were seized by the Austrian emperor and hence the son, Francis Leopold, was brought up at the court of Vienna. As our informant says, the widowed princess, who had remained Graf Tequili, was forced to hand over her children with their properties to the emperor, who said he would become their guardian and be responsible for their education. This arrangement was made in March 1688, when, however, Prince Francis came of age his properties, with many restrictions and limitations, were given back to him by the Emperor of Austria. In 1694, this Prince Ragozzi married at Kohn am Rhein, Charlotte Amalia, daughter of the Landgraf Karl von Hess von Fried, of the line of Rheinfels. Of this marriage, there were three children, Joseph, George, and Charlotte. Almost immediately after this period, Prince Ragozzi began to lead the conspiracies of his noblemen against the Austrian Empire, with the object of regaining his independent power. The history of the struggle is most interesting in every way and singularly pathetic. The prince was defeated and all his properties were confiscated. The sons had to give up the name of Ragozzi and to take the titles of St. Carlo and St. Elizabeth. Let us notice what Ezekiel has to say on this point for he has made some very careful investigations on the subject. We are, in fact, inclined to think that Comte de Saint-Germain was the younger son of the Prince Franz Leopold Ragozzi and the Princess Charlotte Amalia of Hesse von Fried. Franz Leopold was married in 1694, and by his marriage he had two sons, who were taken prisoners by the Austrians and brought up as Roman Catholics. They were also forced to give up the dreaded name of Ragozzi, 
The eldest son, calling himself the Marquis of San Carlo, escaped from Vienna in 1734. In this year, after fruitless struggles, his father died at Rodosto in Turkey and was buried in Smyrna. The eldest son then received his father's Turkish pension and was acknowledged Prince of Siebenbergen, Transylvania. He carried on the same warfare as his father, fought against and was driven away by Prince Ferdinand of Lobkowitz, and finally died forgotten in Turkey. The younger brother took no part in the enterprises of his elder brother and appears, therefore, to have always been on good terms with the Austrian government. Adverse writers have made much mystery over the fact that the Comte de Saint-Germain was rich and always had money at his disposal. Indeed, those writers who enjoyed calling him a charlatan and a swindler did not refrain also from hinting that his money must have been ill-gotten. Many even go so far as to say that he made it by deceiving people and exercising an undue influence over them. If we turn to the old Archivarius already mentioned, we find some very definite information that not only shows us whence the large fortune possessed by this mystic was derived, but also why he was so warmly welcomed by the King of France and was so well known at all the courts of Europe. No obscure adventurer is this with whom we are dealing, but a man of princely blood and of almost royal descent. Turning back to the old chronicle we find in the volume for 1736, the will of the late Prince Franz Leopold Ragozzi, in which both his sons are mentioned who have been already named, and also a third son. It also states that Louis XIV has bought landed property for this Prince Ragozzi from the Polish Queen Maria the rents of which property were invested by the order of the King of France in the Hotel de Ville in Paris. We also find that considerable legacies were left which were to be demanded from the Crown of France. The executors of this will were the Duc de Bourbon, the Duc de Maine, and the Comte de Charlevoix and Toulouse. To their care, Prince Ragozzi committed his third son, to whom also he left a large legacy and other rights on this valuable property. Hence we must cast aside the theories that Monsieur de Saint-Germain was a homeless and penniless adventurer seeking to make money out of any kindly disposed person. These were the views and ideas of the newspaper and review writers of the day put forward in the leading periodicals. Unfortunately, the law of heredity prevails in this class of people, and there is a remarkable similarity between the epithets hurled by the press of the 19th century at the venturesome occultist of today and those flung at Monsieur de Saint-Germain and other mystics of lesser importance and minor merit. We will now pass from this portion of our subject to some of the personal incidents related of Monsieur de Saint-Germain. Perhaps the most interesting are those given by one who knew him personally in Anspach during the period that he was in close connection with the Markgraf. It appears that the mystic made two visits at different times to Schwalbach, and thence he went to Triesdorf. We will let the writer speak for himself on this point. On hearing that a stranger, both remarkable and interesting, was at Schwalbach, the Markgraf of Brandenburg, Anspach, invited him to come to Triesdorf in the spring and the Graf Zarogi, for this was the name under which he appeared accepted this invitation on the condition that they would allow him to live in his own way quite unnoticed and at peace. He was lodged in the lower rooms of the castle below those occupied by Mademoiselle Claron. The Markgraf and his wife lived in the Falkenhaus. 
The Graf Sarogi had no servant of his own. He dined as simply as possible in his own room, which he seldom left. His wants were extremely few, and he avoided all general society, spending the evenings in the company of only the Markgraf, Mademoiselle Claren, and those persons whom the former was pleased to have around him. It was impossible to persuade the Graf Sarogi to dine at the prince's table, and he only saw the Markgrafin a few times, although she was very curious to make the acquaintance of this strange individual. In conversation, the Graf was most entertaining, and showed much knowledge of the world and of men. He was always specially glad to speak of his childhood and of his mother, to whom he never referred without emotion, and often with tears in his eyes. If one could believe him, he had been brought up like a prince. One day Sarogi showed the Mark Graf an invitation which he had received, sent by a courier from the Graf Alexis Orloff who was just returning from Italy. The letter pressed Graf Tsarogi to pay him a visit, as Graf Orloff was passing through Nuremberg. The Markgraf went on with Graf Tsarogi to Nuremberg, where the Graf Alexis Orloff had already arrived. On their arrival, Orloff, with open arms, came forward to meet and embrace the Graf Tsarogi, who now appeared for the first time in the uniform of a Russian general. And Orloff called him several times. Caro Padre, Caro Amico. The Graf Alexis received the Mark Graf of Brandenburg Anspach with the most marked politeness and thanked him several times for the protection which the Mark Graf had accorded to his worthy friend. They dined together at midday. The conversation was most interesting. They spoke a good deal of the campaign in the archipelago and still more about useful and scientific discoveries. Orloff showed the Markgraf a piece of unignitable wood, which when tested produced neither flames nor cinders, but simply fell to pieces in light ashes after it had swollen up like a sponge. After dinner, Graf Orloff took the Graf Sarogi into the next room, where they remained for some considerable time together. The writer, who was standing at the window under which the carriages of Graf Orloff were drawn up, remarked that one of the Graf's servants came, opened up one of the carriage doors, and took out from the box under the seat a large leather bag, and carried it upstairs to the other room. After their return to Anspach, the Graf Sarogi showed them, for the first time, his credentials as a Russian general with the imperial seal attached. He afterwards informed the Mark Graf that the name Sarogi was an assumed name, and that his real name was Ragotzi and that he was the sole representative and descendant of the late exiled Prince Ragotzi of Siebenbergen of the time of the Emperor Leopold. So far this narrative is tolerably accurate, but after this point the author proceeds with the history of what he considers the unveiling of the notorious Comte de Saint-Germain, in which all the various theories about his birth, to which we have already referred, are retold with embellishments. Amongst other wild reports, it was stated that Monsieur de Saint-Germain had only become acquainted with the Orloffs in Leghorn in 1770, whereas there are various historical proofs showing without doubt that he was in 1762 in St. Petersburg, where he knew the Orloffs well. We have moreover heard in Russia that he was staying with the Princess Marie Galitsin at Archangelskoy on March 3, 1762. The following details were found in Russia and sent by a Russian friend. The Comte 
de Saint-Germain was here at the time of Peter III and left when Catherine II came to the throne. Monsieur Piliaf thinks even before Catherine's time. At St. Petersburg, St. Germain lived with Count Rotari, the famous Italian painter, who was the painter of the beautiful portraits which are in the Peterhof Palace. The street where they lived is supposed to be the Grafsky Peruluk. Peruluk means small street, and Grafsky comes from Graf Count. Near the Anachkov Bridge, where the palace is on the Nuski, St. Germain was a splendid violinist. He played like an orchestra. In the story of the Razumovsky family, Alexis R. was reported to have spoken of a beautiful moonstone St. Germain had in his possession. Monsieur Piliev has seen, he cannot remember where now, a piece of music, some air for the harp, dedicated to Countess Osterman by St. Germain's own hand, signed. It is bound beautifully in red maroquin. The date is about 1760. Monsieur Piliev thinks that St. Germain was not in Moscow. He says the Yusupov family have many MSS in old chests and that St. Germain was in relations with the prince Yusupov, to whom he gave the elixir for long life. He says, too, that St. Germain did not bear the name of Soltikov, Soltikow in Russia, but that in Vienna he did take this name. About the music signed by St. Germain, Monsieur Piliev now recollects that it belonged to him himself. He bought it at some sale and had it for some time. Then he gave it to the famous composer Peter Tchaikovsky as a present. It must now be in Tchaikovsky's papers, but as the great musician had very little order, Monsieur Piliev thinks it very unlikely that it could be found, especially as at Tchaikovsky's sudden death was all left without any directions being given about the property. We have said that the political events in his family had to some extent shadowed the life of Monsieur de Saint-Germain. One remarkable instance of this we will now cite. It is, as far as we know, the only one in which he himself makes any direct reference to it, and it occurs sometime later that the events which we have just been relating. After the return of the Markgraf from Italy, whither he had gone in 1776, and where he had heard some of the legends and fabrications above referred to, he appears to have sent the writer, whom we have quoted to Schwalbach, to see the Graf Sarogi, and to test his bona fides. We will continue the history as he gives it. On his arrival, he found Monsieur de Saint-Germain ill in bed. When the matter was explained to him, he admitted with perfect coolness that he had assumed from time to time all the names mentioned, even down to that of Soltikow. But he said he was known on all sides and to many people under these names as a man of honor, and that if any calumniator were venturing to accuse him of nefarious transactions, he was ready to exculpate himself in the most satisfactory manner as soon as he knew of what he was accused and who the accuser was who dared to attack him. He steadily asserted that he had not told the Mark Graf any lies with reference to his name and his family. The proofs of his origin, however, were in the hands of a person on whom he was dependent, i.e. the Emperor of Austria, a dependence which had brought on him in the course of his life the greatest espionage when he was asked why he had not informed the Mark Graf about the different names under which he had appeared in so many different places, the Graf Sorogi answered that he was under no obligations to the Mark Graf, and that since he offended no one and did no person any harm, 
he would only give such personal information after and not before he had dealings with them. The Graf said he had never abused the confidence of the Markgraf. He had given his real name. After this, he still remained at Schwalbach. A little later, the author of the paragraph just quoted remarks. What resources Monsieur de Saint-Germain had to defray the necessary expenses of his existence is hard to guess. It appears curious to us that the writer knew so little of contemporary history. As we have seen, all the sons of Prince Ragozzi were amply provided for and the proofs were even more accessible than they are in our day. He goes on to say, in conclusion, it would be an ungrateful task to declare that this man was a swindler, for this proofs are required and they are not to be had. This is truly an ingenious statement, but borders somewhat on libel. To speak of anyone as a swindler without any proof is beyond the bounds of ordinary fairness, and it is especially incongruous in view of the final paragraph, which is as follows. As long as the graph had dealings with the mark graph, he never asked for anything, and never received anything of the slightest value, and never mixed himself up in anything which did not concern him. On account of his extremely simple life, his wants were very limited. When he had money, he shared it with the poor. If we compare these words with those spoken of Monsieur de Saint-Germain by his friend Prince Charles of Hesse, we shall find they are in perfect accord. The only wonder is that a writer who speaks such words of praise can even hint that his subject might be a swindler. If such words can be rightly spoken of an adventurer, then would it be well for the world if a few more of like sort could be found? We shall find similar extraordinary contradictions in various writers as we proceed further with the life of Monsieur de Saint-Germain. Chapter 2. His Travels and Knowledge The Comte de Saint-Germain at Venice in 1710 and the Countess de Georgie Letter to the British Museum in 1733 from The Hague, from 1737 to 1742 in Persia, in England in 1745, in Vienna in 1746, in 1755 in India, in 1757 comes to Paris, in 1760 at The Hague, in St. Petersburg in 1762, in Brussels in 63. Starting new experiments in manufactories in 1760 in Venice. News from an Italian newspaper for 1770. Monsieur de Saint-Germain at Legomme in Paris again in 1774. At Triesdorf in 1776. At Leipzig in 77. Testimony of high character by contemporary writers. The pure cult of nature in the earliest patriarchal days became the heirloom of those alone who could discern the noumenon beneath the phenomenon. Later, the initiates transmitted their knowledge to the human kings, as their divine masters had passed it to their forefathers. It was their prerogative and duty to reveal the secrets of nature that were useful to mankind. No initiate was one if he could not heal. I recall to life from apparent death, coma, those who too long neglected would have indeed died during their lethargy. Those who showed such powers were forthwith set above the crowds and were regarded as kings and initiates. The Secret Doctrine 3. 
263. Let us now trace, as far as we can with any detailed information, the steps of Monsieur de Saint-Germain and some of his extended travels. That he had been in Africa, India, and China, we gather from various hints he gives us, and also from facts stated by many writers at different times. That such travels should seem aimless and trivial to the same writers is not a matter of surprise. But to students of mysticism, and especially those to whom the Great Lodge is a fact and a necessity in the spiritual evolution of mankind, to those students, the widely extended travels of this messenger from that lodge will not be surprising. Rather, they will seek below the surface and try to understand the mission and the work that he came to do among the children of men. We must bear in mind, moreover, that in the ancient world the arts and sciences were regarded as divine gifts, the gifts of the gods. Kings of the divine dynasties, they gave the first impulse to civilization and directed the mind with which they had endued men, to the invention and perfection of all the arts and sciences. Conceited in their shallow ignorance, the generality of mankind scorn the gifts and turn away from the givers. Some few centuries ago, such givers and teachers were silenced at the stake, like Giordano Bruno and many others whom time has now justified in the eyes of men. Then, later, after the reaction of free thought in the 18th century, we find Mesmer and the Comte de Saint-Germain giving up not their lives but their good names and characters in trying to help those to whom they were sent by the Great Lodge. Let us now take up the thread of these travels, and in order to make them as clear as possible, follow them in the order of their dates. These range, as we have seen in our last chapter, from 1710 to 1822. We shall, however, not be able to deal very fully with each period, for Monsieur de Saint-Germain often disappeared for many months at a time. The earliest records we can gather are as follows. There appeared at the court in these days an extraordinary man who called himself Comte de Saint-Germain. At first, he distinguished himself through his cleverness and the great diversity of his talents, but in another respect he soon aroused the greatest astonishment. The old Countess V. Georgi, who fifty years earlier had accompanied her husband to Venice, where he had the appointment of ambassador, lately met St. Germain at Madame de Pompadour's. For some time she watched the stranger with signs of the greatest surprise, in which was mixed not a little fear. Finally, unable to control her excitement, she approached the Count more out of curiosity than in fear. "'Will you have the kindness to tell me,' said the Countess, "'whether your father was in Venice about the year 1710?' "'No, madame,' replied the Count, quite unconcerned. "'It is very much longer since I lost my father, "'but I myself was living in Venice at the end of the last "'and the beginning of this century.' I had the honor to pay you court then, and you were kind enough to admire a few baccarolles of my composing, which we used to sing together. Forgive me, but that is impossible. The Comte de Saint-Germain I knew in those days was at least forty-five years old, and you, at the outside, are that age at present. Madame, replied the Count, smiling, I am very old. But then you must be nearly a hundred years old. That is not possible. And then the Count recounted to Madame V. Georgie 
a number of familiar little details which had reference in common to both to their sojourn in the Venetian states. He offered, if she still doubted him, to bring back to her memory certain circumstances and remarks which... No, no, interrupted the old ambassadress. I am already convinced, for all that you are a most extraordinary man, a devil. For pity's sake, exclaimed St. Germain in a thundering voice. No such names. He appeared to be seized with a cramp-like trembling in every limb and left the room immediately. I mean to get to know this peculiar man more intimately. St. Germain is of medium height and elegant manners. His features are regular, his complexion brown, his hair black, his face mobile and full of genius. His carriage bears the impress in the nobility common only to the great. The Count dresses simply but with taste. His only luxury consists of a large number of diamonds, with which he is fairly covered. He wears them on every finger, and they are set in his snuff boxes and his watches. One evening, he appeared at court with shoe buckles, which Herr V. Gontaut, an expert on precious stones, estimated at 200,000 francs. A matter worthy of remark is that the Count speaks English, French, German, Italian, Spanish, and Portuguese equally perfectly, so much so that when he converses with any of the inhabitants of the above countries in their mother tongue, they are unable to discover the slightest foreign accent. The learned and the oriental scholars have proved the knowledge of the Count St. Germain. The former found him more apt in the languages of Homer and Virgil than themselves. With the latter, he spoke Sanskrit, Chinese, Arabic in such a manner as to show them that he had made some lengthy stay in Asia and that the languages of the East were but poorly learned in the colleges of Louis the Great and Montaigne. The Comte de Saint-Germain accompanied on the piano without music. Not only every song, but also the most difficult concerti played on various instruments. Rameau was much impressed with the playing of this dilettante, and especially struck at his improvising. The Count paints beautifully in oils, but that which makes his painting so remarkable is a particular color, a secret which he has discovered, and which lends to the painting an extraordinary brilliancy. In his historical pieces, St. Germain always introduces into the dress of the women sapphires, rubies, and emeralds of such brilliant hue that they seem to have borrowed their beauty from the original gems. Van Loo, who never tires in his admiration of the surprising coloring, has often requested the Count to let him participate in his secret. The latter, however, will not divulge it. Without attempting to sit in judgment on the knowledge of a fellow being, of whom at this very moment that I am writing both court and town have exhausted all surmises, one can, I think, well assert that a portion of his miracles is due to his knowledge of physics and chemistry, in which sciences he is well grounded. At all events, it is palpable that his knowledge has laid the seeds for him of sound good health, a life which will, or which has overstepped the ordinary time allotted to man, and has also endowed him with the means of preventing the ravages of time from affecting the body. Among other statements concerning the Count's astounding qualities made to the favorite by Madame V. Georget, after her first meeting with the Count after this lapse of years, was that during her first day in Venice she received from him an elixir, 
which for fully a quarter of a century preserved unaltered the youthful charms she possessed at twenty-five. Every gentleman whom Madame de Pompadour questioned concerning this peculiar incident gave the assurance that this was the truth, adding that the standing still in youthful appearance of Madame V. Georgie, supported by the testimony of these old men, would make it appear still more probable. One evening at a party, St. Germain accompanied several Italian heirs for the young Comtesse afterwards so celebrated under the name of Comtesse de Genie, then aged ten years. When she had finished singing, the Count said to her, In five or six years you will have a very beautiful voice, which you will preserve a long time. In order to perfect the charm, you should also preserve your beauty. This will be your happy fate between your sixteenth and seventeenth year. But Count, answered the child, while allowing her pretty fingers to glide over the notes, that does not lie in anyone's power. Oh, yes, answered the Count carelessly. Only tell me whether it would give you pleasure to remain at that age. Truly, that would be charming. Well, I promise it you. And St. Germain spoke of other matters. Encouraged by the friendliness of this fashionable man, the Countess's mother ventured to ask him if Germany was his fatherland. Madame, said he, sighing deeply, there are some things of which one may not speak. Suffice it to know that at seven years of age I was wandering in woods and that a price was set upon my head. On my birthday, my mother, whom I was not to see again, bound her portrait round my arm. I will shew it to you. At these words, St. Germain threw up his sleeve and shewed the ladies the miniature of an exceptionally beautiful woman, but represented in rather a peculiar costume. To what date does this dress belong? asked the young countess. Without answering this question, the count put down his sleeve again and brought forward another topic. Every day one was surprised by a fresh miracle in Count St. Germain's company. Some little time previously, he had brought Madame de Pompadour a bon bonnier, which was universally admired. It was worked very beautifully in black enamel, and on the lid was an agate. The Count begged the Marquis to place the bon bonnier near the fire. A few minutes later, she went to take it away. How great was the astonishment of all present! The agate had disappeared, and in its place was to be seen a pretty shepherdess in the midst of her flock. After the bonbonniere had again been placed near the fire, the shepherdess disappeared, and the agate reappeared. This episode was written down in 1750, but the facts mentioned took place in 1723. It must be carefully noticed that all the personal friends of Monsieur de Saint-Germain were in high position, chiefly Austrians and Hungarians, all men of high birth and noble family, his own kith and kin. Among them we find Prince Konitz, Prince Ferdinand Lobkowitz, Graf Zabor, Graf Maximilian Joseph von Lamberg, men of public position and well-known families. From 1737 to 1742, our mystic was at the court of the Shah of Persia, and it is here that he probably acquired his knowledge of diamonds and precious stones. For according to his own very credible statement, it was here that he began to understand the secrets of nature. But his arduously acquired knowledge leads us to infer a long period of careful study. 
These hints we gather from F.W. von Barthold and his interesting work, and they confirm the statement made by another writer that Monsieur de Saint-Germain had been pursuing his researches in Persia. We next find him in England, during the Jacobite Revolution of 1745, suspected as a spy and arrested. Two interesting extracts can here be quoted. The first is from Horace Walpole's amusing letters to Sir Horace Mann, the British envoy at Florence. Writing on December 9, 1745, Walpole, after relating all the excitements produced by the revolution, says, The other day they seized an odd man who goes by the name of Count St. Germain. He has been here these two years and will not tell who he is or whence, but professes that he does not go by his right name. He sings and plays on the violin wonderfully, is mad and not very sensible. The second reference to this stay in England may be found in Reed's Weekly Journal or British Gazetteer, May 17, 1760, and is as follows. The author of the Brussels Gazette tells us that the person who styles himself Comte de Saint-Germain, who lately arrived here from Holland, was born in Italy in 1712. He speaks German and French as fluently as Italian and expresses himself pretty well in English. He has a smattering of all the arts and sciences, is a good chemist, a virtuoso in music, and a very agreeable companion. In 1746, 1745, according to Walpole, he was on the point of being ruined in England. One who was jealous of him with a lady slipped a letter into his pocket as from the young pretender, thanking him for his services and desiring him to continue them, and immediately had him taken up by a messenger. His innocence being fully proved on his examination, he was discharged out of the custody of the messenger and asked to dinner by Lord H., probably William Stanhope, Earl of Harrington, who was Secretary of the Treasury and Treasurer of the Chamber at this date. He died 1760. Those who know him will be sorry, says Monsieur Maubert, to hear that he has incurred the Christian king's displeasure. This last paragraph alludes to what occurred at a later period. After this date, 1745, it seems that Monsieur de Saint-Germain went to Vienna and spent some time in that city and in 1755 went to India for the second time, as we gather from a letter of his written to the Graf von Lamberg to which we shall refer again later on. I am indebted, he writes, for my knowledge of melting jewels to my second journey to India in the year 1755 with General Clive, who was one under Vice Admiral Watson. On my first journey, I had only a very faint idea of the wonderful secret of which we are speaking. All the attempts that I made in Vienna, Paris, and London are worthless as experiments. The great work was interrupted at the time I have mentioned. Every writer, adverse or favorable, mentions and lays stress on the wonderful power of improving precious stones that was possessed by Monsieur de Saint-Germain. Indeed, almost every sort of art seems to have been more or less known to him, judging by the many testimonies that we have on these points. Our next date, 1757, brings us to the period which is best known to the public. Monsieur de Saint-Germain was introduced at Paris by the then Minister of War, Marechal and Comte de Belle-Isle. But as we have seen from the records already cited, neither 
Monsieur de Saint-Germain nor his family were unknown to Louis XV. Hence, we do not wonder at the cordial and gracious reception with which he met. Nor can we be astonished that the king assigned him a suite of rooms at his royal chateau of Chambord. Here there was a laboratory fitted up for experiments, and a group of students gathered round our mystic. Among these we find the Baron de Glichen, and Marquis de Urf, and also the Princess of Anhalt-Zerbst, mother of Catherine II of Russia. Madame de Genlis, speaking of him at this period, says, He was well acquainted with physics, and was a very great chemist. My father, who was well qualified to judge, was a great admirer of his abilities in this way. He had discovered a secret respecting colors, which was really wonderful, and which gave an extraordinary effect to his pictures. Monsieur de Saint-Germain never would consent to give up his secret. Madame de José relates in her memoirs an interesting instance of his knowledge of precious stones. The king, says she, ordered a middling-sized diamond which had a flaw in it to be brought to him. After having it weighed, his majesty said to the comte, The value of this diamond as it is, and with the flaw in it, is six thousand livres. Without the flaw, it would be worth at least ten thousand. Will you undertake to make me a gainer of four thousand livres? St. Germain examined it very attentively and said, It is possible. It may be done. I will bring it to you again in a month. At the time appointed, the Comte de Saint-Germain brought back the diamond without a spot and gave it to the king. It was wrapped in a cloth of amianthos, which he took off. The king had weighed it immediately and found it very little diminished. His majesty then sent it to his jeweler by Monsieur de Gontau, without telling him of anything that had passed. The jeweler gave him 9,600 livres for it. The king, however, sent for the diamond back again and said he would keep it as a curiosity. He could not overcome his surprise and said, Monsieur de Saint-Germain must be worth millions, especially if he possessed the secret of making large diamonds out of small ones. The Comte neither said that he could or could not, but positively asserted that he knew how to make pearls grow and give them the finest water. The king paid him great attention, and so did Madame de Pompadour. Monsieur de Canoy once said that Saint Germain was a quack, but the king reprimanded him. In fact, his majesty appears infatuated with him and sometimes talks of him as if his descent were illustrious. One fact in this Parisian period must not be omitted. It appears from statements made by Madame de José, Herr von Bartold, and the Baron de Glichen, that a young Englishman, at that time resident in Paris, Lord Gower by name, used to amuse himself and other idle people by passing himself off as Monsieur de Saint-Germain, so that most of the silly and foolish tales about him which ran riot in the gossiping salons of the period originated in the sayings of this idle young fellow. Various details of his doings are to be found, but they are not worth further notice, beyond the fact that Monsieur de Saint-Germain had to bear the blame for utterances which did not originate with him. Says here Van Sipstein, Many of the wild stories had probably nothing to do with Monsieur de Saint-Germain, and were invented with the object of injuring him and making him ridiculous. 
A certain Parisian wag known as Milord Gower was a splendid mimic and went into Paris salons to play the part of St. Germain. Naturally, it was very exaggerated, but very many people were taken in by this make-believe St. Germain. Meanwhile, our philosopher worked on with those whom he was able to help and teach in various ways. In 1760, we find him sent by Louis XV to The Hague on a political mission. The circumstances are variously told by different writers. In April 1760, we find Monsieur de Saint-Germain passing through East Friesland to England. Next, in the London Chronicle of June 3, 1760, we have a long account of a mysterious foreigner who had just arrived on England's shores. It is also said by one writer that he was well-received at court, and many papers of the period mention him as a person of note to whom marked attention was paid. In the British Museum, there are pieces of music composed by the Comte de Saint-Germain on both visits, for they are dated 1745 and 1760. It was said everywhere, by enemies as well as by friends, that he was a splendid violinist. He played like an orchestra. There is one most interesting souvenir of Monsieur de Saint-Germain, which we have had the good fortune to see. It is preserved in the library of the grand old castle of Rodnitz in Bohemia, the property of Prince Ferdinand von Lobkowitz. Among the MSS was other treasures of that rare collection. We found a book of music composed by Monsieur de Saint-Germain, from which, by the gracious permission of the present prince, we have traced the inscription and autograph. It runs thus. Written in French here, translated to English. For the Prince of Lobkowitz reasoned music, according to common sense, to the English ladies who appreciate the true taste in this art. Par de Saint-Germain. The first letter or letters of the signature are quite undecipherable, although they have been most carefully traced for us by the librarian of Rodnitz. We next have to pass on to St. Petersburg, where, according to the words of the Graf Gregor Orlov, to the Margrave of Brandenburg-Ansbach, Monsieur de Saint-Germain had played a great part in their revolution. He is mentioned as having been in St. Petersburg by another writer, or rather in an anonymous book, the translation of the title of which runs, A Few Words About the First Helpers of Catherine II, 18 BK3, page 343-1869. The writer has other details in her possession, but as they are at present unverified and come rather as fragments, it is better to wait for more accurate information, which she hopes to procure. Various hints, however, lead us to suppose that Monsieur de Saint-Germain passed some time in Russia. As we have noticed already, the Princess of Anhalt-Zerbst, the mother of Catherine II, was very friendly to him. Indeed, he passed much time at her house in Paris. In 1763, however, we get a deeply interesting account of our philosopher in the shape of a letter from the Graf Karl Kobenz to the Prince Konitz, the Prime Minister. The details it gives are so interesting that it is better to quote it in full. Brussels, April 8, 1763. Graf Karl Kobenz to Knutz. It was about three months ago that the person known by the name of the Comte de Saint-Germain passed this way and came to see me. 
I found him the most singular man that I ever saw in my life. I do not yet precisely know his birth. I believe, however, that he is the son of a clandestine union in a powerful and illustrious family. Possessing great wealth, he lives in the greatest simplicity. He knows everything and shows an uprightness, a goodness of soul worthy of admiration. Among a number of his accomplishments, he made under my own eyes some experiments, of which the most important were the transmutation of iron into a metal as beautiful as gold, and at least as good for all goldsmith's work. The dyeing and preparation of skins carried to a perfection which surpasses all the Moroccos in the world, and the most perfect tanning. The dyeing of silks carried to a perfection hitherto unknown. The like dyeing of woolens the dyeing of wood in the most brilliant colors penetrating through and through, and the whole without either indigo or cochineal, but the commonest ingredients, and consequently at a very modern price. The composition of colors for painting ultramarine is as perfect as is made from lapis lazuli, and finally removing the smell from painting oils and making the best oil of province from the oils of Navette, of Colsat, and from others, even the worst, I have in my hands all these productions made under my own eyes. I have had them undergo the most strict examinations, and seeing in these articles a profit which might mount up to millions. I have endeavored to take advantage of the friendship that this man has felt for me, and to learn from him all these secrets. He has given them to me, and he asks nothing for himself beyond a payment proportionate to the profits that may accrue from them. It being understood that this shall be only when the profit has been made. As the marvelous must inevitably seem uncertain, I have avoided the two points which appear to me to be feared. The first, the being a dupe, and the second, the involving myself in too great an expenditure. To avoid the first, I took a trusty person under whose eyes I had the experiments made, and I was fully convinced of the reality and cheapness of these productions. And as to the second, I referred Monsieur de Zermont, which is the name that Saint Germain has taken, to a good and trustworthy merchant at Tournay, with whom he is working, and I had the advances made which mount up to very little through Natine, whose son and the son-in-law of Walquiers are the persons who will carry on these manufactures when the profits of the first experiments place us in a position to establish them without risking anything of our own. The moment for deriving the profit is already close at hand. From another source, also we hear of de Saint-Germain at Tournay, namely from the memoirs of Casanova. Casanova, on the road to Tournay, was informed of the presence of Monsieur le Comte de Saint-Germain and desired to be presented to him. Being told that the Comte received no one, he wrote him to request an interview, which was granted under the restriction of coming incognito and not being invited to partake of food with him. Casanova found the Comte in the dress of an Armenian with a long beard. In this interview, Monsieur de Saint-Germain informed Casanova that he was arranging a fabrique for the Graf Cobenzel. From 1763, the date at which we have now arrived, up to 1769, we only get the details of one year in Berlin, and this account comes from the memoirs of Monsieur Diodorne Thibault, who gives the following interesting sketch. 
There came to Berlin and remained in that city for the space of a year a remarkable man who passed by the name of the Comte de Saint-Germain. The Abbé Pernetti was not slow in recognizing in him the characteristics which go to make up an adept and came to us with wonderful stories. The author then goes on to relate that the Princess Semele went to call on him, and he also remarks that the old Baron Niehausen was always addressed by Monsieur de Saint-Germain as my son. Says our author, Madame de Trussel was also anxious to see him. The Abbe Pernetti arranged the matter for her, and the Comte came to her house one evening to supper. They chanced to make mention of the Philosopher's Stone, and the Comte curtly observed that most people who were in pursuit of that were astonishingly illogical, inasmuch as they employed no agent but fire, forgetting that fire breaks up and decomposes, and that consequently it was mere folly to depend upon it for the building up of a new composition. He dwelt much upon this and finally led the conversation back to more general topics. In appearance, Monsieur de Saint-Germain was refined and intellectual. He was clearly of gentle birth and had moved in good society, and it was reported that the famous Cagliostro, so well known for his mystification of Cardinal Rohan and others at Paris, had been his pupil. The pupil, however, never reached the level of his master, and while the latter finished his career without mishap, Cagliostro was often rash to the point of criminality and died in the prison of the Inquisition at Rome. In the history of Monsieur de Saint-Germain, we have the history of a wise and prudent man who never willfully offended against the code of honor, or did aught that might offend our sense of probity. Marvels we have without end, never anything mean or scandalous. The exact date of this visit to Berlin we cannot accurately give, but it comes in before the stay in Venice, where he was found by the Graf Max von Lamberg, at this time Chamberlain to the Emperor Joseph II, and in his book we have some most interesting details. The Graf finds Monsieur de Saint-Germain under the name of Marquis de Mar, or Belmar making a variety of experiments with flax, which he was bleaching to look like Italian silk. He had established quite a large place and had about a hundred workers. It would appear that he then traveled with the Graf von Lamberg, for in a paper published at Florence, July 1770, the Notizie del Mondo, under the heading News of the World, we find the following paragraph. Tunis. July 1770. The Count Maximilian de Lamberg, Chamberlain of MMLL II and RR, having paid a visit to the island of Corsica to make various investigations, has been staying here since the end of June in company with the Signor de Saint-Germain, celebrated in Europe for the vastness of his political and philosophical knowledge. No further details are given of this journey, but we hear of Monsieur de Saint-Germain being in Mantua in the year 1773. One important point which belongs to the year 1770 has been omitted. Monsieur de Saint-Germain was at Leghorn when the Russian fleet was there. He wore a Russian uniform and was called Graf Saltikov by the Graf Alexis Orlov. 
It was moreover in this year that he returned to Paris on the disgrace of the prime minister, his enemy, the Duc de Choisil. All his abilities, especially his extraordinary kindness, says here von Sipstein. Yes, even magnanimity, which formed his essential characteristics, had made him so respected and so beloved that when in 1770, after the fall of the Duc de Choisil, his arch-enemy, he appeared again in Paris. It was only with the greatest expressions of sorrow that the Parisians allowed him to depart. Monsieur de Saint-Germain came to The Hague after the death of Louis XV, May 10, 1774, and left for Schwalbach in 1774. This was the last time he visited Holland. It cannot be ascertained with accuracy how often he was there. It is stated in a German biography that he was in Holland in 1710, 1735, 1742, 1748, 1760, and 1773. This last date brings us to the period that we have already noticed, the stay at Triesdorf and at Schwalbach, where many alchemical and other experiments were carried on by the Markgraf and the Comte. The former, we hear, was proud of his medical knowledge and obtained from the English consul at Leghorn a copy of the prescription for the Russian tea, or aqua benedetta, made by Monsieur de Saint-Germain, which was used in the Russian fleet, then in the archipelago, to preserve the health of the troops under the severe heat. From 1774 until 1776, we have the visit to Triesdorf. In 1776, we hear of our mystic in Leipzig, and the following year in Dresden. With these periods, we shall have to deal in our next paper. About 1779, we hear of Monsieur de Saint-Germain at Hamburg. Thence he goes to Prince Karl of Hesse and stays with him for some time as his loved and honored guest. They begin various experiments together, experiments which were in all cases to be of use to the human race. Writing of the knowledge and alluding to the early education of Monsieur de Saint-Germain by the Duc de Medici, the prince says, this house, Medici, as is well known, was in possession of the highest knowledge, and it is not surprising that he should have drawn his earlier knowledge from them, but he claimed to have learned that of nature by his own application and researches. He thoroughly understood herbs and plants, and had invented the medicines of which he constantly made use of, and which prolonged his life and health. I still have all his recipes, but the physicians ran riot much against his science after his death. There was a physician, Lausau, who had been an apothecary, and to whom I gave twelve hundred crowns a year to work at the medicines which the Comte de Saint-Germain taught him, among others, and chiefly his tea, which the rich bought and the poor received gratis. After the death of this physician, disgusted by the talk I heard on all sides, I withdrew all the recipes, and I did not replace Lausau. Looking back at the record of all the powers and abilities possessed by this great man, one point comes out clearly. Either he was following some definite plan, a plan not known to the general world, or he wandered from place to place without aim, without family, without human ties. A sorrowful life, truly, for so gifted a mortal, if this were so. But since he appeared always contented, though knowing more than those with whom he came into contact, always giving and never in need, ever helping, but never claiming aid. 
Surely with some evidence it becomes obvious to even the critical skeptic that some power, some plan, must have guided the footsteps and life of the Comte de Saint-Germain. Indeed, one of the writers before quoted says, Sometimes he fell into a trance, and when he again recovered, he said he had passed the time while he lay unconscious in far-off lands. Sometimes he disappeared for a considerable time, then suddenly reappeared, and let it be understood that he had been in another world in communication with the dead. Moreover, he prided himself on being able to tame bees and to make snakes listen to music. The author seems unaware that the ordinary yogis of India have this power over snakes, and doubtless Monsieur de Saint-Germain learned his knowledge in India. The power also of communicating with the dead has had more light thrown on it in this 19th century, thanks to those who follow in the footsteps of Monsieur de Saint-Germain and who are aiding in the same great work. Nevertheless, although the above-quoted writer is skeptical on these points, he awards a tribute of honest merit to our philosopher worth noticing. When writing, however this may be, St. Germain was in many respects a remarkable man, and wherever he was personally known, he left a favorable impression behind, and the remembrance of many good and sometimes of many noble deeds. Many a poor father of a family, many a charitable institution, was helped by him in secret. Not one bad nor one dishonorable action was ever known of him, and so he inspired sympathy everywhere, and not least in Holland. Thus clearly stands out the character of one who by some is called a messenger from that spiritual hierarchy by whom the world's evolution is guided, such is the moral worth of the man whom the shallow critics of the earth call adventurer. Chapter 3 the Coming Danger Madame d'Ademar and the Comte de Saint-Germain His Sudden Appearance in Paris Interview with the Countess Warnings of Approaching Danger to the Royal Family Desires to See the King and the Queen Important Note by the Countess d'Ademar relative to the various times she saw the Comte de Saint-Germain after his supposed death Last date, 1822. The following extracts are translated from the very rare and valuable souvenir de Marie Antoinette by the Countess d'Adamar, who had been an intimate friend of the Queen and who died in 1822. I have not been able to find a single copy of this rare work in any library in England or on the continent to which I have so far had access. But fortunately, a copy exists at Odessa in the library of Madame Fadif, the aunt and friend of Madame H.P. Blavatsky, and this may lend it an additional interest in the opinion of some of our readers. One of our members has been kindly permitted to make some extracts from the four volumes, and thanks are due to Madame Fadif for so graciously lending the work for this purpose. Madame Dadamar appears to have kept a daily diary after the fashion of the period, and to have later written her souvenirs from this diary, occasionally interjecting an explanatory remark. They cover a long period of time ranging from 1760 to 1821. One very interesting fact as to dates occurs in a note written by the hand of the Countess, fastened with a pin to the original MS. 
and dated May 12, 1821. She died in 1822. It refers to a prophecy made to her by St. Germain about the year 1793, when he warned her of the approaching sad fate of the queen, and in response to her query as to whether she would see him again, he replied, Five times more. Do not wish for the sixth. The Countess writes, I saw Monsieur de Saint-Germain again, and always to my unspeakable surprise, at the assassination of the Queen, at the coming of the 18th Brumaire, the day following the death of the Duke, Don Guen, 1804, in the month of January, 1813, and on the eve of the murder of the Duke de Berry, 1820, I await the sixth visit when God wills. Those dates are of interest because of the generally received opinion that St. Germain died in 1784. Some few writers say he only retired from public work. These varying opinions will be treated later, says Madame Dadimar. Since my pen is again writing the name of the Comte de Saint Germain, I will say something about him. He appeared, that is the word, at the court of France long before me. It was in 1743. The rumor spread that a stranger, enormously rich to judge by the magnificence of his jewelry, had just arrived at Versailles. Whence did he come? That is what no one has been able to learn. His countenance, haughty, intellectual, acute, struck one at first sight. He had a pliant, graceful figure, delicate hands, a small foot, an elegant leg which set off a well-fitting silk stocking. The small clothes, very tight, also suggested a rare perfection of form. His smile showed the most beautiful teeth in the world. A pretty dimple adorned his chin. His hair was black. His eyes were soft and penetrating. Oh, what eyes! I've nowhere seen their equal. He appeared about forty to forty-five years old. He was met again in the smaller apartments where he had free admission at the beginning of 1768. He did not see Madame du Barry, but he was present at the catastrophe of Madame de Chateroux. When this lady died, the king, who had only known the Count for a year, had nevertheless so much confidence in him that he asked him for an antidote for the dying Duchess. The Count refused, saying, It is too late. She continues, At this same period a very singular adventure befell me. I was alone in Paris. Madame Dadimar, having gone to visit some relations of his own name, that he had in Languedoc. It was one Sunday at eight o'clock in the morning. I am accustomed to hear Mass at noon, so that I had but little time for my toilette and preparing to go out. I rose hurriedly, and then, and had scarcely thrown on my morning wrapper when Mademoiselle Rostand, my head-waiting woman, in whom I also placed entire confidence, came in to tell me that a gentleman wished to speak to me. To pay a visit to a woman at eight o'clock was against all accepted rules. Is it my procurator, my lawyer? I asked. For one has always one of these gentlemen at one's heels, however little property one may possess. Is it my architect, my saddler, or one of my farmers? To each question, a negative answer. But who is it then, my dear? I treated my maid with familiarity. She was born the same day as myself, in the same house, that of my father, with the difference that I came into the world in a handsome apartment while she in the lodge of our house porter. 
Her father, a worthy Languedoc man, was a superannuated pensioner in our service. I thought, answered my maid, with all due respect to Madame la Comtesse, that the devil had long since made a mantle out of the skin of this personage. I passed in review all those of my acquaintance who could have deserved any special treatment by Satan, and I found so many of them I did not know on whom to fasten my conjectures. Since Madame does not guess, continued Mademoiselle Rostand, I will take the liberty of telling her that it is the Comte de Saint-Germain. Comte de Saint-Germain, I exclaimed, the man of miracles, himself. My surprise was great on finding that he was at Paris and in my house. It was eight years since he had left France, and no one knew in the least what had become of him. Heeding nothing but my curiosity, I ordered her to show him in. Did he tell you to announce him to me under his own name? It is Monsieur de Saint-Noël that he calls himself now. No matter, I should recognize him among a thousand. She went out, and a moment after the Count appeared. He looked fresh and well and almost grown younger. He paid me the same compliment, but it may be doubted whether it was as sincere as mine. You have lost, I said to him, a friend, a protector, and the late king. I doubly regret this loss, both for myself and for France. The nation is not of your opinion. It looks to a new reign for its welfare. It is a mistake. This reign will be fatal to it. What are you saying? I replied, lowering my voice and looking around me. The truth. The gigantic conspiracy is being formed, which as yet has no visible chief, but he will appear before long. The aim is nothing less than the overthrow of what exists to reconstruct it on a new plan. There is ill will towards the royal family, the clergy, the nobility, the magistracy. There is still time, however, to baffle the plot. Later, this would be impossible. Where have you seen all this? Is it in dreaming or awake? Partly with the help of my two ears and partly through revelations. The king of France, I repeat, has no time to lose. You must seek an audience of the Comte de Maurepas and let him know your fears, for he can do everything being entirely in the confidence of the king. He can do everything I know except save France, or rather... It is he who will hasten her ruin. This man will undo you, madame. You are telling me enough about it to get yourself sent to the Bastille for the rest of your days. I do not speak thus except to friends of whom I am sure. Nevertheless, see, Monsieur de Maurepas, he has good intentions, though wanting in ability. He would reject the evidence. Besides, he detests me. Do you not know the silly quatrain which caused his exile? Beautiful Marquis, they praise your charms. Lovely are you and very frank, but all that does not prevent your flowers being flowers. The rhyme is inaccurate, Count. Oh, the Marquis paid little attention to it, but she knew that Monsieur de Maurepas was the author of it, and he pretended that I had taken away the original manuscript from him to send it to the Hati Sultana. His exile followed the publication of these wretched verses, and from that time he included me in his schemes of vengeance. He will never forgive me. Nevertheless, Madame la Comtesse, this is what I propose to you. Speak of me to the Queen, 
of the services that I have rendered to the government and the missions that have been entrusted to me at the various courts of Europe. If Her Majesty will listen to me, I will reveal to her what I know. Then she will judge whether it will be well for me to enter into the king's presence. Without the intervention, however, of Monsieur de Maripas, that is my sine qua non. I listened attentively to Monsieur de Saint-Germain, and I understood all the dangers that would again fall on my head if I interfered in such an affair. On the other hand, I knew the Count to be perfectly conversant with European politics, and I feared to lose the opportunity of serving the state and the king. The Comte de Saint-Germain, guessing my perplexity, said to me, Think over my proposal. I am in Paris incognito. Do not speak of me to anyone, and if tomorrow you will come to meet me in the church of the Jacobins in the Rue Saint-Honneur, I will await your answer there at eleven o'clock precisely. I would rather see you in my own house. Willingly. Tomorrow then, madame. He departed. I pondered all day on this apparition, as it were, and on the menacing words of the Comte de Saint-Germain. What? We were on the eve of social disorganization. This reign, which was ushered in under such happy auspices, was brewing the tempest. After long meditation on this text, I determined to present Monsieur de Saint-Germain to the Queen, if she consented to it. He was punctual to the appointment and delighted at the resolution that I had made. I asked him if he was going to settle in Paris. He answered in the negative. His plans no longer permitted him to live in France. A century will pass, he said, before I shall reappear there. I burst out laughing, and he did the same. That very day I went to Versailles. I passed through the small apartments, and finding Madame de Misery there, I begged her to let the Queen know that I wished to see her as soon as she could receive me. The head chamberwoman returned with the command to conduct me in. I entered. The queen was sitting in front of a charming porcelain writing table, which the king had given her. She was writing, and turning her head, she said to me with one of her gracious smiles, What do you want with me? A trifle, madame. I merely aspire to save the monarchy. Her majesty looked at me with amazement. Explain yourself. At this command, I mentioned the Comte de Saint-Germain. I told all that I knew of him of his intimacy with the late king, Madame de Pompadour, the Duc de Choisil. I spoke of the real services that he had rendered to the state by his diplomatic ability. I added that since the death of the Marquis, he had disappeared from court and that no one knew the place of his retirement. When I had sufficiently piqued the Queen's curiosity, I ended by repeating to her what the Count had said to me the previous day and had confirmed that morning. The Queen appeared to reflect... Then she replied, It is strange. Yesterday I received a letter from my mysterious correspondent. He warned me that an important communication would shortly be made to me, and that I must take it into serious consideration on pain of the greatest misfortunes. The coincidence of these two things is remarkable, unless, however, they come from the same source. What do you think about it? I scarcely know what to say of it. Here has the Queen been receiving these mysterious communications for several years, and the Comte de Saint-Germain reappeared only yesterday. 
Perhaps he acts in this way in order to better conceal himself. That is possible. Nevertheless, something tells me that one ought to put faith in his words. After all, one is not sorry to see him, were it only in passing. I authorize you then to bring him tomorrow to Versailles, disguised in your livery. He shall remain in your apartments, and as soon as it is possible for me to admit him, I will have you both summoned. I will not listen to him except in your presence. That, too, is my sine qua non. I bowed profoundly, and the queen dismissed me with the usual signal. I own, however, that my confidence in the Comte de Saint-Germain was lessened by the confidence of his coming to Paris with the warning received the day before by Marie Antoinette. I fancied I saw it in a regular scheme of trickery, and I asked myself if I ought to speak to him about it. But, considering all, I resolved to be silent, certain that he was prepared beforehand to answer this question. Monsieur de Saint-Germain was awaiting me outside. As soon as I perceived him, I stopped my carriage. He got into it with me, and we returned together to my house. He was present at my dinner, but according to his custom, he did not eat. After this, he proposed to go back to Versailles. He would sleep at the inn, he added, and rejoin me the next day. I consented to this, eager as I was to neglect nothing for the success of this business. We were in my dwelling then, in quarters which at Versailles were called a suite of apartments. When one of the Queen's pages came to ask me, on Her Majesty's behalf, for the second volume of the book that she had desired me to bring her from Paris, this was the signal agreed upon. I handed the page a volume of some new novel, I know not what, and as soon as he had gone I followed accompanied by my lackey. We entered through the cabinets. Madame de Misery conducted us to the private room where the Queen was awaiting us. She rose with affable dignity. Monsieur le Comte, she said to him, Versailles is a place which is familiar to you. Madame, for nearly twenty years I was on intimate terms with the late king. He deigned to listen to me with kindness. He made use of my poor abilities on several occasions, and I do not think that he regretted having given me his confidence. You have wished, Madame Dadamar, to bring you to me. I have great affection for her, and I do not doubt that what you have to tell me deserves listening to. The Queen, answered the Count in a solemn voice, will, in her wisdom, weigh what I am about to confide to her. The encyclopedist party desire power. They will only obtain it by the absolute downfall of the clergy and to ensure the result they will overthrow the monarchy. This party, who seek a chief among the members of the royal family, have turned their eyes on the Duc de Chartres. This prince will become the tool of men who will sacrifice him when he is seized to be useful to them. The crown of France will be offered him, and he will find the scaffold instead of the throne. But before this day of retribution, what cruelties, what crimes... Laws will no longer be the protection of the good and the terror of the wicked. It is these last two who will seize power with their blood-stained hands. They will abolish the Catholic religion, the nobility, the magistracy. So that nothing but royalty will be left, interrupted the queen impatiently. Not even royalty, but a greedy republic whose scepter will be the axe of the executioner. At these words I could not contain myself in taking upon me to interrupt the Count in the Queen's presence. Monsieur, I cried, 
Do you think of what you are saying and before whom you are speaking? In truth, added Marie Antoinette, a little agitated, these are things that my ears are not accustomed to hear. And it is in the gravity of the circumstances that I find this boldness, coolly replied Monsieur de Saint-Germain. I have not come with the intention of paying a homage to the queen of which she must be wary, but indeed to point out to her the dangers which threaten her crown, if prompt measures are not taken to avert them. You are positive, monsieur, said Marie Antoinette, petulantly. I am deeply grieved to displease your majesty, but I can only speak the truth. Monsieur, replied the queen, affecting a playful tone, the true, perhaps, may sometimes not be the probable. I admit, madame, that this is a case in point, but your majesty will permit me in my turn to remind you that Cassandra foretold the ruin of Troy and that they refused to believe it. I am Cassandra. France is the kingdom of Priam. Some years yet will pass by in a deceitful calm. Then from all parts of the kingdom will up men greedy for vengeance, for power, and for money. They will overthrow all in their way. The seditious populace and some great members of the state will lend them support. A spirit of delirium will take possession of the citizens. Civil war will burst out with all its horrors. It will bring in its train murder, pillage, exile. Then it will be regretted that I was not listened to. Perhaps I shall be asked for again, but the time will be past. The storm will have swept all before it. I confess, monsieur, that this discourse astonishes me more and more, and I did not know that the late king had an affection for you, and that you had served him faithfully. You wish to speak to the king? Yes, madame. But without the concurrence of Monsieur de Maurepas? He is my enemy. Besides, I rank him among those who will further the ruin of the kingdom, not from malice, but from incapacity. You are a severe judge of a man who has the approbation of the majority. He is more than prime minister, madame, and by right of this he is sure to have flatterers. If you exclude him from your relations with the king, I fear that you will find it difficult to approach his majesty, who cannot act without his chief adviser. I shall be at your majesty's command as long as they wish to employ me. But as I am not their subject, all obedience on my part is a gratuitous act. Monsieur, said the queen, who at this period could not treat any matter seriously for long together? Where were you born? At Jerusalem, madame. And that was when? The queen will permit me to have a weakness common to many persons. I never like to tell my age. That brings misfortune. As for me, the royal almanac does not allow of any illusion about my own. Farewell, monsieur. The pleasure of the king shall be communicated to you. This was a dismissal. We retired, and in returning home with me, monsieur de Saint-Germain said to me, I too am about to leave you, madame, and for a long time, for I do not propose to remain more than four days in France. What is it that makes you decide to start so quickly? The queen will repeat to the king what I have said to her. Louis the Sixteenth will tell it again in his turn to Monsieur de Maurepas. This minister will drop a warrant, letter de cachet, against me 
and the head of the police will have orders to put it into execution. I know how these things are done, and I have no desire to go to the Bastille. What would it matter to you? You would get out through the keyhole. I prefer not to need recourse to a miracle. Farewell, madame. But if the king should summon you? I will return. How shall you know it? I have the means of doing so. Do not trouble yourself on that point. Meanwhile, I shall be compromised. Not so. Farewell. He departed as soon as he had taken off my livery. I remained greatly troubled. I had told the queen that in order to be better able to carry out her wishes, I would not leave the chateau. Two hours after, Madame de Misery came to see me on behalf of Her Majesty. I augured no good from this eagerness. I found the king with Mary Antoinette. She appeared to me embarrassed. Louis XVI, on the contrary, came up to me in a frank way and took my hand, which he kissed, with infinite grace, for he had charming manners when he pleased. Madame Dedemar, he said to me, what have you done with your wizard? The Comte de Saint-Germain, sire? He has started for Paris. He has seriously alarmed the queen. Had he previously spoken in the same way to you? Not with so many details. I bear no ill will to you for it, nor does the queen either, for your intentions are good but I blame the stranger for daring to foretell reverses to us which all the four quarters of the globe could not offer in the course of a century. Above all, he is wrong in concealing himself from the Comte de Maurepas, who would know how to lay aside his personal enmities if it were necessary to sacrifice them to the interests of the monarchy. I shall speak to him on the subject, and if he advises me to see Saint-Germain, I shall not refuse to do so. He is credited with intellect and ability. My grandfather liked his society. But before granting him a conference, I wish to reassure you as to the possible consequences of the fresh appearance of this mysterious personage. Whatever may happen, you will be held clear. My eyes filled with tears at this striking proof of the kindness of their majesties, for the queen spoke to me as affectionately as did the king. I returned calmer but vexed, nevertheless, at the turn that this affair had taken, and I inwardly congratulated myself that Monsieur de Saint-Germain had foreseen all. Two hours later I was still in my room absorbed in my own thoughts when there was a knock at the door of my modest dwelling. I heard an unusual commotion and almost immediately the two folding doors opened and Monseigneur le Comte de Maurepas was announced. I rose to receive him with rather more briskness than if it had been the King of France. He came forward with a smiling countenance. Pardon me, madame, he said, for the unceremoniousness of my visit, but I have some inquiries to make of you, and politeness required that I should come to seek you. The courtiers of this period showed an exquisite politeness to women— which was no longer to be found in its purity after the storm which overturned everything. I replied, as I was bound to do, to Monsieur de Maurepas, and these preliminaries over. Well, he resumed, our old friend, the Comte de Saint-Germain, has returned. He is already at his old tricks and has recommended his jugglery. 
I was about to exclaim, but stopping me with a gesture of entreaty. Believe me, he added. I know the rogue better than you do, madame. One thing only surprises me. The years have not spared me, and the queen declares that the Comte de Saint-Germain presented the appearance of a man of forty. However that may be, we must know whence he has gained this information. So circumstantial, so alarming. He did not give you his address. I will warrant. No, Monsieur le Comte. It will be discovered. Our police hounds have a keen scent. Further, the king thanks you for your zeal. Nothing grievous will befall Saint-Germain, except that being shut up in the Bastille, where he will be well-fed, well-warmed, until he condescends to tell us where he has got at so many curious things. At this moment, our attention was diverted by the noise made by the opening of the door of my room. It was the Comte de Saint-Germain who entered. A cry escaped me while Monsieur de Maurepas hurriedly rose, and I must say that his countenance changed a little. The thaumaturgist approaching him said, Monsieur le Comte de Maurepas, the king summoned you to give him good advice, and you think only of maintaining your own authority. In opposing yourself to my seeing the monarch, you are losing the monarchy for I have but a limited time to give to France, and this time over, I shall not be seen here again until after three consecutive generations have gone down to the grave. I told the queen all that I was permitted to tell her. My revelations to the king would have been more complete. It is unfortunate that you should have intervened between his majesty and me. I shall have nothing to reproach myself with when horrible anarchy devastates all France. As to these calamities, you will not see them, but to have prepared them will be sufficient memorial of you. Expect no homage from posterity, frivolous and incapable minister. You will be ranked among those who cause the ruin of empires. Monsieur de Saint-Germain, having spoken thus without taking breath, turned towards the door again, shut it, and disappeared. All efforts to find the Count failed. Chapter 4 Tragical Prophecies Continuation of the Memoirs of Madame d'Adamar Marie-Antoinette receives Monsieur de Saint-Germain. He predicts the downfall of royalty. Louis XVI desires to see Monsieur de Saint-Germain. Monsieur de Maurepas arrives. The Comte de Saint-Germain also disappears. The most deeply interesting of all the incidents recorded in this diary of Madame d'Adamar are those which show how Monsieur de Saint-Germain strove to warn the royal family of the evils which were overshadowing it. He had evidently watched over the unfortunate young queen from the time of her entry into France. He was the mysterious advisor of whom mention is frequently made. He it was who strove to make the king and queen understand that Monsieur de Maurepas and their other advisers were wrecking their kingdom. The friend of royalty, he was yet the one most accused by the Abbé Berruel of leading the revolution. Time proves all, and time has allowed the accuser to sink into a well-deserved oblivion, while the accused stands out as true friend and true prophet. Let the voice of the dead woman bear its own witness. The future was darkening, 
We were nearing the terrible catastrophe which was about to overwhelm France. The abyss was at our feet. Yet, averting our heads, struck with a fatal blindness, we hurried from fete to fete, from pleasure to pleasure. It was like a kind of frenzy which thrust us gaily onto our destruction. Alas, how can a storm be controlled when one sees it not? Meanwhile, from time to time, some troubled or observant minds tried to snatch us from this fatal security. I've already said that the Comte de Saint-Germain had tried to unseal the eyes of their majesties by making them perceive the approach of danger, but Monsieur de Maurepas, not wishing the salvation of the country to come from anyone but himself, ousted the thaumaturgist, and he reappeared no more. The date at which these events were taking place was 1788. The final crash, however, did not culminate until 1793. Madame Dadamar is reviewing events and does not in every case put the exact date. The attacks upon the king and throne were increasing in violence and bitterness year by year, owing to the fatal blindness already alluded to by our writer. The frivolity of the court increased peri passu with the hatred of its enemies. The unfortunate queen indeed did make efforts to understand the condition of affairs, but in vain. Madame Dadimar gives us some details as follows. I cannot refrain from copying here, in order to give an idea of these sad debates in the National Assembly, a letter written by Monsieur de Salier, parliamentary adviser to the Chambre de Raquette, and addressed to one of his friends, a member of the Parliament at Toulouse, this account was spread abroad and read with avidity. Many copies of it were circulated in Paris. Before the original reached Toulouse, it was spoken of in the drawing-room of the Duchess de Polignac. The Queen, turning to me, asked me if I had read it and requested me to procure it for her. This request caused me real embarrassment. I wished to obey Her Majesty, and at the same time I feared to displease the ruling minister. However, my attachment to the Queen prevailed. Mary Antoinette read the article in my presence and then signing, Ah, Madame Dadimar, she said, How painful all these attacks on the authority of the king are to me. We are walking on dangerous ground. I begin to believe that your Comte de Saint-Germain was right. We were wrong not to listen to him, but Monsieur de Maurepas imposed a skillful and despotic dictatorship upon us. To what are we coming? The queen sent for me, and I hastened to her sacred order. She held a letter in her hand, Madame Dadamar, she said. Here is another missive from my unknown. Have you not heard people talking again of the Comte de Saint-Germain? No, I replied. I have not seen him, and nothing has reached me from him. This time, added the queen, the oracle used the language which becomes him. The epistle is in verse. It may be bad, but it is not very cheering. You shall read it at your leisure, for I have promised an audience to the Abbe de Belvieres. I wish that my friends could live on good terms. Especially, I ventured to add, as their enemies triumph in their quarrels. The unknown says the same as you do, but who is wrong or right? The queen may satisfy both parties by means of the first two vacant bishoprics. You are mistaken. The king will give the episcopal mitre neither to the Abbe Deres nor to the Abbe de Belivier. The protectors of these gentlemen and our Abbe will believe that the ill will is on my side. 
You might, since you are compared to the heroes of Ariosto, the speech of the Baroness de Stel that occurred to the Queen, play the part of peacemaker of the good King Sobrier. Behold, the Countess Diana, make her listen to reason. I will talk reason to her, said I, trying to laugh in order to dispel the melancholy of the Queen. Diana is a spoiled child, replied Her Majesty. However, she loves her friends. Yes, madame, even to showing herself implacable to their enemies. I will obey the queen. They came to inform Marie Antoinette that the Abbe de Balviere had arrived according to her command. I passed into the small closet where, having asked Madame Campin for pen, ink, and paper, I copied the following passage, obscure then, but which afterwards became only too clear. The time is fast approaching when, in prudent France, surrounded by misfortune, she might have spared herself. We'll call to mind such hell as Dante painted. This day, O Queen, is near, no more can doubt remain. A hydra, vile and cowardly, with his enormous horns, will carry off the altar, throne, and themis. In place of common sense, madness and credible will reign, and all will be lawful to the wicked. Yea, Falling shall we see scepter, censer, scales, towers, and uscachons, even the white flag. Henceforth will all be fraud, murders, and violence, which we shall find instead of sweet repose. Great streams of blood are flowing in each town, sobs only do I hear, and exiles see. On all sides civil discord loudly roars, and uttering cries on all sides virtue flees. As from the assembly votes of death arise, Great God, who can reply to murderous judges? And on what brows against I see the sword descend? What monsters treated as the peers of heroes? Oppressors, oppressed, victors, vanquished. The storm reaches you all in turn, in this common wreck. What crimes, what evils, what appalling guilt menace the subjects as the potentates, and more than one usurper triumphs in command. More than one heart misled is humbled and repents. At last, closing the abyss and born from a black tomb, there rises a young lily, more happy and more fair. These prophetic verses written by a pen we already knew astonished me. I racked my brains to guess their meaning, for how could I believe that it was their simplest meaning that I ought to give them? How imagine, for instance, that it was the king and queen who would die a violent death, and as the result of iniquitous sentences? We cannot in 1788 have such clear sight. It was an impossibility. When I returned to the queen and no indiscreet person could listen, she said, What do you make of these threatening verses? They are dismaying, but they cannot affect your majesty. People do say incredible things, follies. If, however, the prophetic words turn out to be true, they will concern our posterity. Pray heaven you speak truly, Madame Dadimar, replied the queen. However, these are strange experiences. Who is this personage who has taken an interest in me for so many years without making himself known, without seeking any reward, and who yet has always told me the truth? He now warns me of the overthrow of everything that exists, and if he gives a gleam of hope, it is so distant that I may not reach it. I strove to comfort the queen. Above all, I told her she must make her friends live on good terms with each other and not let their private quarrels be known outside. 
Mary Antoinette answered me in these memorable words. You fancy that I possess credit or power in our salon. You are mistaken. I had the misfortune to believe that a queen was permitted to have friends. The consequence is that all try to rule me or to use me for their own personal advantage. I am the center of a crowd of intrigues which I have difficulty in avoiding. Everyone complains of my ingratitude. That is not the role of a queen of France. There is a very fine verse which I apply to myself, making a change in the reading. Kings are condemned to magnificence. I should say with more reason. Kings are condemned to be weary in utter loneliness. So I should act were I to begin my career again. Madame Dadamar does not give any very definite dates in her diary, and it is chiefly by the historical episodes which led up to the final crash that we are able to mark the passage of time. Passing on from the general events, deeply interesting in themselves, but not bearing on the Comte de Saint-Germain, we come to the proscription which was passed against the royalists in 1789, and once more the unfortunate queen received a warning from her unknown adviser, whose advice, alas, fell on ears too weak to understand. Hearing of the proceedings against the Polignacs, Marie Antoinette sent to warn the Duchess about her approaching fall. Madame Dadamar graphically tells the tale as follows. I arose, and showing the pain that this commission gave me, I went off to Madame de Polignac. I could have wished to find her alone. I met there the Duke, her husband, her sister-in-law, the Count de Vaudreuil, and Monsieur l'Abbé de Bolivier. On seeing my solemn look when I entered, my swollen eyes still wet with the tears that had mingled with those of the Queen, they felt that I had come for a sad reason. The Duchess held out her hand to me. What have you to tell me? she said. I am prepared for every misfortune. Not, said I, for that which is about to burst upon you. Alas, my sweet friend, bear it with resignation and courage. These words died away on my lips, and the countess, taking up the words, said, You are causing my sister a thousand sufferings by your reticence. Well, madame, what is the matter? The queen, I said, in order to avoid the proscription that threatens you, you and yours, wishes you to go for some months to Vienna. The queen drives me away, and you come to tell me, cried the duchess, rising. Unjust friend, I answered, let me tell you all that remains to be told. Then I went on and repeated word for word what Marie Antoinette had charged me to tell her. There were more cries, more tears, more despairings. I did not know to whom to listen. Monsieur de Vaudria showed no more firmness than the Polignacs. Alas, said the Duchess, it is my duty to obey. I will certainly depart since the Queen wills it. But will she not permit me to repeat verbally my gratitude for her innumerable kindnesses? Never, said I, did she think of your going before she had consoled you. Go then to her chamber. Her reception will make amends for you for this apparent disfavor. The Duchess begged me to accompany her, and I consented. My heart was broken at the sad interview between these friends who had loved each other so warmly. It was a flood of complaints, tears, sighs. They embraced each other so closely that they could not tear themselves apart. It was truly pitiful to see. At this moment, a letter was brought to the queen, curiously sealed. She glanced at it, shuddered as she looked at me and said, It is from our unknown. 
In truth, said I, it seems strange to me that he should have remained quiet in such circumstances as these. Besides, he has only anticipated me. Madame de Polignac, from her expression, appeared eager to know what was so familiar to me. A sign that I made let the queen know this. Her majesty then proceeded to say, From the time of my arrival in France, and in every important event in which my interests have been concerned, a mysterious protector has disclosed what I had to fear. I have told you something of it, and today I doubt not that he is advising me what to do. Here, Madame Dadamar, she said to me, read this letter, your eyes are less tired than Madame de Polignac's and mine. Alas, the queen referred to the tears that she never ceased to shed. I took the paper and, having opened the envelope, I read what follows. Madame, I have been a Cassandra. My words have fallen on your ears in vain, and you have reached the period of which I informed you. It is no longer a question of tacking, but of meeting the storm with thundering energy. In order to do this and to increase your strength, you must separate yourself from the persons whom you most love so as to remove all pretext from the rebels. Moreover, these persons run the risk of their lives. All the Polignacs and their friends are doomed to death and are pointed out to the assassins who have just murdered the officers of the Bastille and the provost of the merchants. The Count d'Artois will perish. They thirst for his blood. Let him take heed to it. I hasten to tell you this. Later on I will communicate further with you about it. We were in the stupor which such a menace inevitably causes when the Count d'Artois was announced. We all started, and he himself was astounded. He was questioned and unable to keep his silence. He told us that the Duke de Liancourt had just told him as well as the King that the men of the Revolution, in order to consolidate it, had made up their minds to take his life, that of the Count d'Artois and that of the Duchess de Polignac, and of the Duke, and also the lives of Messieurs de Vaudriel, de Vermont, de Guiche, of the Dukes de Broglie, de Lavoguillot, de Castries, the Baron de Brotillot, Messieurs de Villedeux, de Mercour, de Paulestron, in a word, a real proscription. On returning home, a note was given to me, thus worded. All is lost, Countess. This sun is the last which will set on the monarchy. Tomorrow it will exist no more. Chaos will prevail. Anarchy unequaled. You know all I have tried to do to give affairs a different turn. I have been scorned. Now it is too late. Keep yourself in retirement. I will watch over you. Be prudent, and you will survive the tempest that you will have beaten down all. I resist the desire that I have to see you. What should we say to each other? You would ask of me the impossible. I can do nothing for the king, nothing for the queen, nothing for the royal family, nothing even for the Duke d'Orleans, who will be triumphant tomorrow, and who all in due course will cross the capital to be thrown from the top of the Tarpeian Rock. Nevertheless, if you would care very much to meet with an old friend, go to the eight o'clock mass at the Recollect and enter the second chapel on the right hand. I have the honor to be Comte de Saint-Germain. At this name, already guessed, a cry of surprise escaped me. 
he's still living, he who was said to have died in 1784 and whom I had not spoken of for long years past. He had suddenly reappeared, and at what moment, what an epoch. Why had he come to France? Was he then never to have done with life? For I knew some old people who had seen him bearing the stamp of forty or fifty years of age, and that at the beginning of the eighteenth century. It was one o'clock at night when I read his letter. The hour for the rendezvous was early, so I went to bed. I slept little. Frightful dreams tormented me, and in their hideous grotesqueness, I beheld the future without, however, understanding it. As day dawned, I rose worn out. I had ordered my butler to bring me some very strong coffee, and I took two cups of it, which revived me. At half-past seven, I summoned a sedan chair, and followed by my confidential old servant, I repaired to the Recollets. The church was empty. I posted my Laroche as sentinel, and I entered the chapel named. Soon after, and almost before I had collected my thoughts in the presence of God, behold a man approaching. It was himself in person. Yes, with the same countenance as in 1760, while mine was covered with furrows and marks of decrepitude. I stood impressed by it. He smiled at me, came forward, took my hand, kissed it gallantly. I was so troubled that I allowed him to do it in spite of the sanctity of the place. There you are, I said. Where have you come from? I am come from China and Japan. Or rather, from the other world. Yes, indeed, pretty nearly so. Ah, madame, down there. I underline the expression. Nothing is so strange as what happens here. How is the monarchy of Louis XIV disposed of? You who do not see it cannot make the comparison, but I... I have caught you, man of yesterday. Who does not know the history of this great reign? And Cardinal Richelieu, if he were reborn, it would send him mad. What, not rule? What did I tell you, and the queen too? That Monsieur de Maurepas would let everything be lost, because he compromised everything. I was Cassandra, or a prophet of evil, and now how do you stand? Ah, Comte, your wisdom will be useless. Madame, he who sows the wind reaps the whirlwind. Jesus said so in the gospel, perhaps not before me, but at any rate his words remain written and people could only have profited by mine. Again, I said, trying to smile, but he, without replying to my exclamation, said, I have written it to you. I can do nothing. My hands are tied by a stronger than myself. There are periods of time when to retreat is impossible. Others, when he has pronounced and the decree will be executed. Into this we are entering. Will you see the queen? No, she is doomed. Doomed to what? To death. Oh, this time I could not keep back a cry. I rose on my seat, my hands repulsed the cone, and in a trembling voice I said, And you too? You? What, you too? Yes, I, I like Kazot. You know. What you do not even suspect. Return to the palace. Go and tell the queen to take heed to herself that this day will be fatal to her. There is a plot. Murder is premeditated. You fill me with horror, but the Comte d'Estaing has promised. He will take fright and will hide himself. But Monsieur de Lafayette... A balloon puffed out with wind, 
and even now they are settling what to do with him. Whether he shall be instrument or victim, by noon all will be decided. Monsieur, I said, you could render great services to our sovereigns if you would. And if I cannot? How? Yes, if I cannot? I thought I should not be listened to. The hour of repose has passed, and the decrees of providence must be fulfilled. In plain words, what do they want? The complete ruin of the Bourbon. They will expel them from all the thrones they occupy, and in less than a century they will return to the rank of simple private individuals in their different branches. And France? Kingdom, republic, empire, mixed governments, tormented, agitated, torn. From clever tyrants she will pass on to others who are ambitious without merit. She will be divided, parceled out, cut up, and these are no pleonasms that I use. The coming times will bring about the overthrow of the empire. Pride will sway or abolish distinctions, not from virtue but from vanity, and it is through vanity that they will come back to them. The French, like children playing with handcuffs and slings, will play with titles, honors, ribbons. Everything will be a toy to them, even to the shoulder belt of the National Guard. The greedy will devour the finances. Some fifty millions now form a deficit in the name of which the revolution is made. Well, under the dictatorship of the philanthropists, the rhetoricians, the fine talkers, the state debt will exceed several thousand millions. You are a terrible prophet. When shall I see you again? Five times more. Do not wish for the sixth. I confess that a conversation so solemn, so gloomy, so terrifying inspired me with little wish to continue it. Monsieur de Saint-Germain oppressed my heart like a nightmare. It is strange how much we change with age. How we look with indifference, even disgust, on those whose presence formerly charmed us. I found myself in this condition under present circumstances. Besides, the immediate danger of the Queen preoccupied me. I did not sufficiently urge the Count. Perhaps, if I had entreated him, he would have come to her. There was a pause, and then, resuming the conversation, Do not let me detain you longer, he said. There is already disturbance in the city. I am like Athali. I wish to see, and I have seen. Now I will take up my part again and leave you. I have a journey to take to Sweden. A great crime is brewing there. I'm going to try to prevent it. His Majesty Gustavus III interests me. He is worth more than his renown. And is he menaced? Yes, no longer will happy as king be said, and still less as a queen. Farewell then, monsieur. In truth, I wish I had not listened to you. Thus it is ever with us truthful people. Deceivers are welcomed, but lie upon whoever says that which will come to pass. Farewell, madame. Au revoir. He departed. I remained absorbed in deep meditation, not knowing whether I ought to inform the queen of this visit or not. I decided to wait till the end of the week, and to keep silence if it teemed with misfortunes. I rose at last, and when I had found La Roche again, I asked him if he had seen the Comte de Saint-Germain as he went out. The minister, madame? No, he has long been dead. The other? Ah, the clever conjurer. No, madame. Did madame la comtesse meet him? He went out just now. He passed close to you. I must have been distracted. 
for I did not notice him. It is impossible, LaRoche, you are joking. The worse the times are, the more respectful I am to Madame. What? By this door closed to you, he has passed. I do not mean to deny it, but he did not strike my eye. Then he had made himself invisible. I am lost in astonishment. These are the last words that the Countess d'Ademar writes in connection with the Comte de Saint-Germain, or that friend who has tried so vainly to save them from the storm which was then raging on all sides. One important note which has already been noticed may, however, here again be fitly quoted. It is evidently from the pen of the biographer that we get this important little memo, which is as follows. Note written by the hand of the Countess, fastened with a pin to the original MS, and dated the 12th May, 1821. She died in 1822. I saw Monsieur de Saint-Germain again, and always, to my unspeakable surprise, at the assassination of the Queen, at the coming of the 18th Brumaire, the day following the death of Duc d'Anguin, in the month of January 1813, and on the eve of the murder of the Duc de Berry, I await the sixth visit when God wills. Thus does a voice from the dead contradict the malicious diatribes made against this teacher, and also refute the unfounded assertions about his death in 1784, made by Dr. Beister of Berlin, which have been already fully noted. Perhaps the most interesting passages are those which give the utterances of the Comte de Saint-Germain with regard to the future of France. It is now a hundred and thirty years since those words were uttered, and we can see that they have been accurately correct in every detail. The Bourbons are now but a private family. The honor of France has been wrecked by those who had arrogated to themselves positions of honor and trust, in which their moral characters were not able to stand the strain. Cases may be cited as instances illustrating, but too clearly, the truth of the sorrowful forecast made by the mystic messenger of the last century. He might have fitly quoted the words of the prophet forerunner, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. But alas, for France, neither prophecies nor warnings availed her. Slowly and sadly has the wheel of her life turned round, proving the veracity and accuracy of that prophet who was sent to warn her of the doom to come. Chapter 5 Political Work The political work of the Comte de Saint-Germain remarks by Voltaire, Baron de Glichen, states that the Marshal de Belle Isle drew up the instructions. Louis XV delivered then himself with a cipher to Monsieur de Saint-Germain. Anger of the Duc de Choisil attempts to capture Monsieur de Saint-Germain, leaves Holland for England. The earliest definite hint of any political work on the part of the Comte de Saint-Germain is from the pen of Madame d'Adimar. When sketching the portraits of those who were received into intimacy by Louis XV, at Versailles, she says, The king was also much attached to the Duchess de Choisil, Necrozat. Her simplicity, her frankness, more virtues than were necessary to make a success at Versailles, had triumphed over the drawback of her birth, and she was frequently present at the suppers in the smaller apartments. One man also had long enjoyed this favor, the celebrated and mysterious Comte de Saint-Germain, my friend who has not been rightly known, 
and to whom I shall devote some pages when I have to speak of Cagliostro. From 1749, the king employed him on diplomatic missions, and he acquitted himself honorably in them. This passage would remain incomprehensible unless we glance briefly at the history of the period. Dark and stormy is the scene on which we enter. Difficult indeed is it to disentangle the knotted web of European politics which enmeshed the various nations. Austria and France had signed in 1756 an offensive and defensive alliance, especially directed against England and Prussia. Russia was with them. During the Seven Years' War, the throne of Prussia tottered more than once, until the Austrians were defeated at Torgau in 1760. Poland, that Niobe of nations, was watching the clouds gather slowly on her horizon. Racked within by strife, stirred up by Russia, she struggled vainly against the stronger powers. Her day was slowly ending. England, at war in America and with France, striving also to conquer India, was also a center of discord. All Europe was in dissension. Into this arena of combat, the Comte de Saint-Germain was asked to step by the King of France in order to make that peace which his ministers involved in their own plans could not or would not make. Louis XV was practically the originator of the whole system of secret diplomacy, which in the 18th century seems to stand out as a new departure in the diplomatic political world. The Gordian knot, which could not be disentangled, Louis XV tried to cut. Hence we find the King of France employing secret agents, men who could be trusted with delicate missions, men foredoomed to bear the blame of failure, fated never to be crowned with the palm of success. Outside the various foreign offices, or beyond the pale of their secret archives, it is very little known that the Comte de Saint-Germain had any diplomatic mission whatsoever. In many histories and memoirs, there is no mention of this phase of his life. Therefore, it is necessary to cite such writers as are available to bear their testimony on this point. Not least among these stands Voltaire, the skeptic who, in his voluminous correspondence with Frederick of Prussia, says, April 15, 1758, Your ministers are doubtless likely to have a better outlook at Breda than I, Monsieur le Duc de Choisil, Monsieur de Konitz, and Monsieur Pitt. Do not tell me their secret. It is said to be only known by a Monsieur de Saint-Germain, who supped formerly at Trent with the Council Fathers, and who will probably have the honor of seeing Your Majesty in the course of fifty years. He is a man who never dies and who knows everything. The allusion supped at Trent is a reference to the gossip which originated from Lord Gower's impersonation and misrepresentation of Monsieur de Saint-Germain of which mention has already been made. The important point in this letter is that Voltaire refers to a political connection of Monsieur de Saint-Germain with the Prime Ministers of England, France, and Austria, as if he were in the intimate council of these leaders. The Baron de Glichen gives some details in his memoirs, and as he became later deeply interested in the mystical work of the Comte de Saint-Germain, his version is of much value, giving as it does an insight into some of the complications in France. He writes, The Marshal, de Belle Isle, was incessantly intriguing to get a special treaty of peace made with Prussia and to break up the alliance between France and Austria, on which rested the credit of the Duc de Choisil. 
Louis XV and Madame de Pompadour wished for this special treaty of peace. The marshal drew up the instructions. The king delivered them himself with a cipher to Monsieur de Saint-Germain. Thus, then, is the mission duly signed and sealed by the king himself. But, as we shall see, even the royal protection could not avert the suspicion and distrust which so unpleasant a position naturally incurred. And when Monsieur de Saint-Germain arrived at The Hague, he came into collusion with Monsieur d'Affry, the accredited ambassador from France. Before entering on the ambassadorial despatches, there were a few words from Herr Barthold to be noticed, giving an interesting account of this diplomatic mission. He, after criticizing somewhat severely and with good reason the unreliable statements about our philosopher made by the Marquis de Craqui and the Mark Grafin von Ansbach, goes on, But of this mysterious mission of the adept as financier to the crown and diplomatic agent to which he was initiated, not at the ministerial desk but in the laboratory of Chambord, she makes no mention. Nor has this point so essential to the understanding of the way business was conducted in France, both in cabinet and state, at this period, ever been much commented on. About this time we find St. Germain at The Hague, evidently on a private mission, where the Comte d'Affry was French ambassador, but the two had no relations with each other. Voltaire, who was generally a good reporter, ascribes the Comte's appearance to the secret treaty of peace. The date mentioned by this author is not quite accurate, as we shall see. That the Duc de Choisil was profoundly annoyed when this information reached him is to be understood. His pet schemes were in jeopardy, his intrigues against England were on the eve of failure. It appears that Monsieur d'Affry bitterly reproached Monsieur de Choisil for having sacrificed an old friend of his father and the dignity of an ambassador to the ambition of making a treaty of peace under his very eyes without informing him of it, through an obscure foreigner. Monsieur de Choisil immediately sent back the courier, ordering Monsieur d'Affry to make a preemptory demand to the States General to deliver up Monsieur de Saint-Germain, and that being done, to send him bound hand and foot to the Bastille. The next day, Monsieur de Choisil produced in council the despatch of Monsieur Daffry, he then read his own reply, then casting his eyes haughtily on his colleagues and fixing them alternatively round on King and on Monsieur de Belle Isle, he added, If I did not give myself time to take the orders of the King, it is because I am convinced that no one here would be bold enough to desire to negotiate a treaty of peace without the knowledge of Your Majesty's Minister for Foreign Affairs. He knew that this prince had established and always maintained the principle that the minister of one department should not meddle with the affairs of another. It turned out as he had foreseen. The king cast down his eyes like a guilty person. The marshal dared not say a word, and Monsieur de Choisil's action was approved. But Monsieur de Saint-Germain escaped him. Their highnesses, having made good their ascent, dispatched a large body of guards to arrest Monsieur de Saint-Germain, who, having been privately warned, fled to England. I have some grounds for believing that he soon left it again to go to St. Petersburg. No better account could be given than this by one present at the French Cabinet Council of the way in which Louis XV, weak and irresolute, allowed his arrangements to be cancelled without a word. Passing, however, rapidly on to follow the events at The Hague, 
We next have some interesting despatches from Monsieur de Coderbach, minister from the Saxon court at The Hague, wherein he recounts much that has already been given in these pages in praise of the Comte de Saint-Germain, of his powers and knowledge, and then goes on to say, I had a long conversation with him on the causes of the troubles of France and on the changes in the choice of minister in this kingdom. This, Monseigneur, is what he said to me on the subject. The radical evil is the monarch's want of firmness. Those who surround him, knowing his extreme good nature, abuse it, and he is surrounded only by creatures placed by the brother Paris, who alone cause all the trouble of France. It is they who corrupt everything and thwarted the plans of the best citizen in France, the Marshal de Belle Isle. Hence the disunion and jealousy amongst the ministers who seem all to serve a different monarch. All is corrupted by the brothers Perry, parish France, provided that they may attain their object of gaining 800 millions. Unhappily, the king has not so much sagacity as good nature. He is not, therefore, aware of the malice of the people around him who, knowing his lack of firmness, are solely occupied in flattering his foible, and through it are ever preferably listened to. The same defect as to firmness is found in the mistress. She knows the evil and has not the courage to remedy it. It is he, then, Monsieur de Saint-Germain, who will undertake to cure it radically. He takes upon himself to put down by his influence and operations in Holland the two names so prejudicial to the state, which have a thereto been regarded as indispensably necessary. Hearing him speak with so much freedom, one must look upon him either as a man sure of his ground, or else as the greatest fool in the world. I could entertain your excellency much longer with this singular man and with his knowledge of physics, did I not fear to weary you with tales which must seem rather romantic than real. The Saxon diplomatist, from whose despatches these extracts are gathered, very shortly changed his friendly tone on finding that the Duc de Choisil did not favor the plans of Louis XV. The self-respecting diplomat then began to disparage the man whom so lately he had lauded as a prodigy. Hence the next dispatch is amusingly different in tone and runs as follows. April 24, 1760 I have this moment heard that the courier, whom the Comte d'Affry received last Monday, brought him an order to demand from the state the arrest and extradition of the famous St. Germain as a dangerous character and one with whom his most Christian majesty has reason to be dissatisfied. Monsieur Daffry, having communicated this order to the pensionnaire, this minister of state reported it to the Council of Deputy Commissioners for the province of Holland, an assembly of which the Comte de Bentinct is president the latter gave the man warning and made him start for England. The day before his departure, St. Germain was four hours with the English minister. He boasted about being authorized to make peace. Later on, in another dispatch, this wary diplomatist returns once more to the attack. The adventurer gave himself here the airs of a secret negotiator selected by the Marshal de Belle Isle from whom he showed letters in which there were in fact some traces of confidence. He wished it to be understood that the principles of the marshal, differing from those of Monsieur de Choisil, and more in accordance with the inclination of Madame de Pompadour, were warmly in favor of peace. He darkened the picture, 
painting in the strongest colors the cabals, the difficulties, and the dissension that he had declared reigned in France. And by these flatteries he thought to gain the confidence of the English party. On the other hand, he had written to the Marshal de Belle Isle that Monsieur d'Affry knew not how to appreciate or carry out the plans of the Comte de Bentinct Rune, who was a man of the best intentions in the world and desired only to make himself useful to France in order to promote the success of her negotiations with England. These letters were sent back to Monsieur d'Affry with a command to forbid Saint Germain to meddle with any transactions on pain of expiating his rashness for the rest of his days in a dungeon on his return to France. Truly ludicrous is the difference in the tone of these documents. Monsieur de Saint-Germain was endeavoring to carry out the wishes of the king and trying to help an exhausted country. These efforts for peace were frustrated by the Choisil, who had his own schemes to forward with Austria. Nothing more natural could have occurred than that the new helper should be attacked by the opposite party. It is evident from the paper cited that Monsieur de Saint-Germain was in the confidence of the Marshal del Belial, who also wanted peace, for the Saxon ambassador uses the phrase some traces of confidence when speaking of the correspondence he had seen and the evidence of confidence he was forced to admit. From this distance of time, we can see that the picture of France sketched by Monsieur de Saint-Germain was by no means too dark. France, impoverished, rushing wildly on to greater ruin, the end of which was to be the scene of blood and butchery. He who had the power of seeing the evil days that were drawing so steadily nigh, could he paint that picture too darkly when endeavoring to stay the ruin of fair France? But we must take up some other threads of this tangled skein. The king of Prussia was at this period in Freiburg, and his own agent, Monsieur Dedelsheim, had just arrived in London to confer with the English ministers. The following account is given later by Frederick II of the condition of affairs. On his arrival in that city, London, another political phenomena appeared there, a man whom no one has been able to understand. He was known under the name of the Comte de Saint-Germain. He had been employed by France and was even so high in favor with Louis XV that this prince had thought of giving him the palace of Chambord, de l'Hiver, de 1759. The mission of Monsieur Delsheim is not clearly stated, but we find that not only did Monsieur de Saint-Germain have to leave London, failing to bring about the peace so sorely desired, but that the Prussian agent fared even worse. The details are given by Herr Bartold. The Prussian negotiator, returning from London via Holland to fetch his luggage from Paris, was induced to remain a few days with the Bailey de Froulet, and then, receiving a letter de cachette, he was put into the Bastille. Choisil assured the prisoner that it was only by these means that he could silence the suspicions of the imperial minister, Strachenberg. But this scene in De Sante was simply a trap to get hold of the baron's papers. Choisil, however, found nothing and told him to decamp, advising him on his leaving Turin not to re-enter the kingdom. Frederick takes care not to find fault with his agent, who through overzeal had drawn discredit on himself in Paris. On the other hand, one may conclude that it was he who, through an article in the London Chronicle, succeeded in frustrating St. Germain's project. In this extraordinary maze of secret negotiations, it is difficult to find the truth. 
For in the work just cited, we hear that St. Germain was seen in the Bois de Boulogne in May 1761. When the Marquis d'Eff informed the Duc de Choisil of his presence in Paris, that Prime Minister replied, written in French here and translated, I am not surprised since he spent the night in my office. This informant proceeds, Casanova is therefore satisfied that de Choisil had only pretended to be annoyed with Monsieur de Saint-Germain so as to make it easier for him to be sent to London as agent. Lord Halifax, however, saw through the plan. This would indeed be one method of cutting the political entanglement of France, an intrigue of a pronounced sort arranged by the king, apparently without the knowledge of his chief minister, in order to arrive at a peace for which the whole country pined. In this difficult situation, the Marshal de Belle Isle selected the Comte de Saint-Germain as the messenger of peace. Alas, missions of peace rarely result in anything but discomfort and slander for the bearer of the message, and the history of the world recorded one more failure, a failure caused by the ambitions of the political leaders. Leaving now the conditions of affairs in France and passing on to England, we find some very interesting correspondence between General York, the English representative at The Hague, and Lord Holderness in London. By a special permission from the Foreign Office, we have been kindly permitted to make use of these extracts. The full correspondence is too lengthy to print in the limited space permissible in these pages. The first despatch is from General York to the Earl of Holderness. It is dated March 14, 1760, and gives the full account of a long interview between the Comte de Saint-Germain and himself. The former claims, he says to have been sent by France to negotiate concerning the peace, but says that Monsieur Daffry is not in the secret. The answer to this document comes from Whitehall, March 21, 1760, and is from Lord Holderness to General York. In this he directs the latter, to tell Monsieur de Saint-Germain that by the king's orders he cannot discuss the subject with him unless he produces some authentic proof of his being employed with the consent and knowledge of the French king. In the next despatch, dated Whitehall, March 28, 1760, the king directs that the same answer should be returned to Monsieur Daffry, and has already been given to Monsieur de Saint-Germain. The king thinks it probable that Monsieur de Saint-Germain was authorized to talk to General York in the manner he did and that his commission is unknown to the Duc de Choisil. The insight of George III in this case is remarkable, unless in his private correspondence with Louis XV some hint as to the real condition of things may have been given by one king to the other. In any case, the fact remains that owing to Monsieur de Choisil, the Treaty of Peace was not arranged. And as we have seen, Monsieur de Saint-Germain passed on from England to Russia, Turning now to some other witnesses, we find Monsieur Thibault in his memoirs saying, While this singular man was at Berlin, I ventured one day to speak of him to the French envoy, the Marquis de Pons Saint-Maurice. I privately expressed to him my great surprise that this man should have held private and intimate relations with persons of high rank, such as the Cardinal de Bernice, from whom he had, it was said, Confidential letters written at the time when the cardinal held the portfolio for foreign affairs, etc. On this last point, the envoy made me no reply. 
This passage implies other diplomatic missions of which no details are to be found. Another writer, who has also been quoted, makes an important statement to the effect that when Monsieur de Saint-Germain was in Leipzig, the Graf Marcolini offered him a high public position at Dresden. Our philosopher was at Leipzig in 1776 under the name of Chevalier Velden and did not at all conceal the fact that he was a Prince Ragozzi. This informant says, The Lord High Chamberlain, Graf Marcolini, came from Dresden to Leipzig and made to the Comte, in the name of the court, certain promises. Monsieur de Saint-Germain refused them, but he came in 1777 to Dresden, where he had much intercourse with the Prussian ambassador, von Alvin Slibin. The statement can be corroborated by the writer of the life of Graf Marcolini, which has been carefully compiled from the secret archives of the Saxon court, with a special permission by the Freiherr Aubern. The Graf Marcolini was a man renowned for his integrity and upright character. His biographer says, considering the strong opposition shown by the Graf Marcolini to the swindling in the Schropfer affair, the sympathy he extended to the Comte de Saint-Germain on his arrival in Saxony is all the more wonderful. Graf Marcolini repaired to Leipzig with the intention of interviewing Saint-Germain on hearing of his arrival under the name of Valdun, October 1776. The meeting resulted in the Graf offering Saint-Germain an important post in Dresden if he would render a great service to the state. The Wonder Man, however, refused these offers. Nowhere are to be found the details of any of these diplomatic missions. We can only gather the fragments and, piecing them together, the facts stands clearly proved that from court to court among kings, princes, and ambassadors, the Comte de Saint-Germain was received and known, was trusted as friend, and by none feared as enemy. Chapter 6 In the Mitchell Papers the diplomatic correspondence between Lord Holderness and General York from the British Museum, secret mission of the Comte de Saint-Germain, not permitted to remain in England. George III thinks it not unlikely that Monsieur de Saint-Germain is an authorized agent. The diplomatic correspondence, which forms almost the whole of this paper, is practically an appendix to the last chapter. The details given are interesting and important links in the chain of events which brought Monsieur de Saint-Germain to England. Chance, good fortune, or some beneficent power gave the clue to these hidden records. The Mitchell papers in which these interesting letters have been so long concealed have never yet been entirely published. It appears that George III requested that these documents should not be made public during his life and they were accordingly consigned to the personal care of Mr. Planta, keeper of the British Museum. This correspondence was bought by the trustees of the museum from Sir William Forbes, the heir of Sir Andrew Mitchell, who had been envoy at Berlin during the time that all these events took place. A certain portion of the record of his diplomatic career was published by Mr. Bisset in 1850. No mention, however, was made of Monsieur de Saint-Germain and the letters which treated of him were unnoticed. There appears, curiously enough, to have been a conspiracy of silence amongst the diplomatists and writers of this period and later, for it is a constantly recurring experience to find all reference to our philosopher carefully excluded, 
even in cases where the original sources contain much information about him. A striking instance of such omission is found by searching the different editions of works in which Monsieur de Saint-Germain is mentioned. The later editions usually exclude the information given in the earlier ones. Notably, may this be seen in a work I already referred to by Dr. Karl von Weber, keeper of the Saxon archives in Dresden. In the first edition of this work, there is a long article on Monsieur de Saint-Germain, which is not to be found in the later editions of these volumes. Instances might be easily multiplied of this steady omission wherever possible. Now, the Foreign Office records contain a voluminous correspondence, which is by permission at length being gathered together. This includes the letters of Prince Galitsyn, who was at the period Russian minister in England. All the correspondence is marked secret and can only be seen when sanctioned. The British Museum records have no such restrictions, hence the documents which make up this paper have been copied without delay. The first letter appears to show that Lord Holderness already knew of Monsieur de Saint-Germain. But no facts have so far been found on this point. The language is quaint and the style somewhat heavy, but the contents present a page of history well worth our study. It must be remembered that the mission undertaken by the Comte de Saint-Germain was a secret one, and that he had to disguise how far he was in the confidence of Louis XV. With this point in mind, it will be easier to understand the difficulties in which he was involved. Turning now to the documents, we find that the first letter is from General York. Mitchell Papers, Volume 15, L.D. Holderness's Dispatches, etc., 1760, Copy of General York's letter to the Earl of Holderness, Hague, March 14, 1760, in Lord Holderness's of the 21st, 1760, secret. Hague, March 14, 1760. My Lord, my present situation is so very delicate that I am sensible I stand in need of the utmost indulgence, which I hope I shall continue to find from His Majesty's unbounded goodness and that your lordship is convinced that whatever I say or do has no other motive but the advantage of the king's service. As it has pleased his majesty to convey to France his sentiments in general upon the situation of affairs in Europe, and to express by me his wishes for restoring the public tranquillity, I suppose the court of Versailles imagines the same channel may be the proper one for addressing itself to that of England. This is, at least, the most natural way of accounting for the pains taken by France to employ anybody to talk to me. Your lordship knows the history of that extraordinary man, known by the name of Count St. Germain, who resided some time in England where he did nothing, and has within these two or three years resided in France where he has been upon the most familiar footing with the French king, Madame Pompadour, Monsieur de Belle Isle, etc., which has procured him a grant of the royal castle of Chambord, and has enabled him to make a certain figure in that country. He appeared for some days at Amsterdam, where he was much caressed and talked of, and upon the marriage of Princess Caroline alighted at The Hague. The same curiosity created the same attention to him here. His volubility of tongue furnished him with hearers, his freedom upon all subjects, all kinds of suppositions among which his being sent about peace not the least. Monsieur Daffry treats him with respect and attention, but is very jealous of him and did not so much as renew my acquaintance with him. He called, however, at my door, 
I returned his visit, and yesterday he desired to speak with me in the afternoon, but did not come as he appointed, and therefore he renewed his application this morning and was admitted. He began immediately to run on about the bad state of France, their want of peace, their desire to make it, and his own particular ambition to contribute to an event so desirable for humanity in general. He ran on about this predilection for England and Prussia, which he pretended at present made him a good friend to France. As I knew so much of this man and did not choose to enter into conversation without being better informed, I affected at first to be very grave and dry, told him that those affairs were too delicate to be treated between persons who had no vocation and therefore desired to know what he meant. I suppose this style was irksome to him, for immediately afterwards he produced to me, by way of credentials, two letters from Marshal Belle Isle, one dated the 4th and the 26th of February. In the first he sends him the French king's passport on Blanc for him to fill up. In the second he expresses great impatience to hear from him, and in both runs out in praises of his zeal, his ability, and the hopes that are founded upon what he has gone about. I have no doubt of the authenticity of those letters. After perusing them and some commonplace compliments, I asked him to explain himself, which he did as follows. The king, the dauphin, Madame Pompadour, and all the court and nation, except the Duke Choisil and Mr. Berrier, desired peace with England. They can't do otherwise, for their interior requires it. They want to know the real sentiments of England. They wish to make up matters with some honor. Monsieur Daffry is not in the secret, and the Duke Choisil is so Austrian that he does not tell all he receives. But that signifies nothing, for he will be turned out. Madame Pompadour is not Austrian, but is not firm, because she does not know what to trust to. If she is sure of peace, she will become so. It is she and the Marshal Belle Isle, with the French king's knowledge, who send St. Germain as the forlorn hope. Spain is not relied upon. That is a turn given by the Duke Choisil, and they don't pretend to expect much good from that quarter. This, and much more, was advanced by this political adventurer. I felt myself in a great doubt whether I should enter into the conversation. But as I am convinced he is really sent as he says, I thought I should not be disapproved if I talked in general terms. I therefore told him that the king's desire for peace was sincere, and there could be no doubt of it, since we had made the proposal in the middle of our success, which had much increased since. That, with our allies, the affair was easy, without them impossible and that France knew our situation too well to want such information from me, that as to particulars we must be convinced of their desire before they could be touched upon, and that, besides, I was not informed. I talked of the dependence of France upon the two empresses, and the disagreeable prospect before them even if the king of Prussia was unfortunate, but declined going any further than the most general, though the most positive, assurance of a desire for peace on His Majesty's part. As the conversation grew more animated, I asked him what France had felt the most for in her losses, whether it was Canada. No, he said, for they felt it had cost them 36 millions and brought them no return. Guadalupe? They would never stop the peace for that, as they would have sugar enough without it. The East Indies? That, he said, was the same place, as it was connected with all their money affairs. I asked him what they said of Dunkirk. He made no difficulty to demolish it, and that I might depend upon it, 
He then asked me what we thought about Menorca. I answered that we had forgot it, at least nobody ever mentioned it. That, says he, I have told them over and over again, and they are embarrassed with the expense. This is the material part of what passed in the course of three hours' conversation, which I promised to relate. He begged the secret might be kept, and he should go to Amsterdam and to Rotterdam till he knew whether I had any answer, which I neither encouraged nor discouraged him from expecting. I humbly hope His Majesty will not disapprove what I have done. It is not easy to conduct oneself under such circumstances, though I can easily break off all intercourse as I have taken it up. The king seemed desirous to open the door for peace, and France seems in great want of it. The opportunity looks favorable, and I shall wait for orders before I stir a step farther. A general congress seems not to their taste, and they seem willing to go farther than they care to say, but they would be glad of some offer, and HMCM and the lady are a little indolent in taking a resolution. I have, etc. J. York It is clear that the English envoy found himself in a difficult position. The credentials of the Comte de Saint-Germain were sufficiently good to ensure a hearing. But he was not an accredited minister. George II seems to have understood the complication to some extent, as it would appear from the answer sent at his command by Lord Holderness, which runs as follows. Copy of letter from the Earl of Holderness to Major General York. Secret. Whitehall, March 21st, 1760. Sir, I have the pleasure to acquaint you that His Majesty entirely approves your conduct in the conversation you had with Count St. Germain, of which you give an account in your secret letter of the 14th. The King particularly applauds your caution of not entering into conversation with him till he produced two letters from Marshal Belisle, which you rightly observe were a sort of credential, as you talked to him only in general terms, and in a way conformable to your former instructions, no detriment could arise to His Majesty's service were everything you said publicly known. His Majesty does not think it unlikely that Count St. Germain may really have been authorized, perhaps even with the knowledge of his most Christian majesty, by some persons of weight in the councils of France to talk as he has done, and no matter what the channel is, if a desirable end can be obtained by it. But there is no venturing farther conversations between one of the king's accredited ministers and such a person as this Saint Germain is, according to his present appearance. What you say will be authentic, whereas St. Germain will be disavowed with very little ceremony whenever the court of France finds it convenient. And by his own account, his commission is not only unknown to the French ambassador at The Hague, but even to the Minister of Foreign Affairs at Versailles, who, though threatened with the same fate that befell the Cardinal Bernice, is still the apparent minister. It is therefore His Majesty's pleasure that you should acquaint Count St. Germain that in answers to the letters you wrote me, in consequence of your conversation with him, you are directed to say that you cannot talk with him upon such interesting subjects, unless he produces some authentic proof of his being really employed with the knowledge and consent of His Most Christian Majesty. But at the same time you may add that the King, ever ready to prove the sincerity and purity of his intentions, to prevent the farther effusion of Christian blood, will be ready to open himself on the conditions of a peace, if the court of France will employ a person duly authorized to negotiate on that subject, 
provided always that it be previously explained and understood, that in case the two crowns shall come to agree on the terms of their peace, that the court of France shall expressly and confidentially agree that His Majesty's allies and Nomanon, the King of Prussia, are to be comprehended in the Akkad Madman, affair. It is unnecessary to add that England will never so much as hear any pour parler of a peace which is not to comprehend His Majesty as a lector. I am, etc. Holderness. In a passage quoted from the memoirs of Baron de Glichen, Theosophical Review, 2245, we have seen with how little ceremony Monsieur de Saint-Germain was thrown over at the King's Council, and Lord Holderness spoke truly when writing, What you say will be authentic, whereas Saint-Germain will be disavowed with very little ceremony whenever the Court of France finds it convenient. The next letter from General York shows that the Duc de Choisil was working against this much-desired peace. Copy of letter from Major General York to the Earl of Holderness, Secret, Hague, April 4, 1760. My Lord, the credit of my political adventurer, Monsieur de Saint-Germain, does not seem to have gained ground since my last, and the Duc de Choisil seems so much set upon discrediting him that he takes true pains to prevent his meddling in any affairs. I have not seen him since our second interview, and I thought it more prudent to let him alone till he produces something more authentic, conformable to the tenor of the orders I had received. He is, however, still here. The Duc de Choisil has, however, acquainted Monsieur Daffry that he should again renew to him preemptorily to meddle in nothing which related to the political affairs of France and accompany this order with a menace to the consequence if he did. Madame de Pompadour is not pleased with him neither for insinuating things against Monsieur Daffry, of which, either from inclination or apprehension, she has acquainted the Duc de Choisil, so that he has acquired an enemy more than he had. Marshal Belisle, too, had wrote to him under Monsieur Daffry's cover, but in civil terms, thanking him for his zeal and activity, but telling him at the same time that as the French king had an ambassador at the Hague in whom he placed his confidence, he might safely communicate to him what he thought was for the service of France. The tone of Marshal Belisle's letters shows that he had been more connected with Saint-Germain than the Duc de Choisil, who is outrageous against him and seems to have the upper hand. In all this correspondence, however, there appears as yet nothing about Saint-Germain and me. The whole relates to the affairs of Holland, the insinuations Saint-Germain had made of the wrong measures they took here, and the bad hands they were in. I take it for granted, however, that as the Duc de Choisil has got the better of him in one instance, he will be able to do it in all the others, especially as in that minister's letter to Monsieur Daffry he desires him to forewarn all the foreign ministers from listening to him as the court might lose all credit and confidence either about peace or war if such a man gained any credit. A person of consequence to whom Monsieur Daffry showed all the letters gave me this account to whom he added, who knows what he may have said to Mr. York as I know he has been to wait upon him. Monsieur Daffry told this person likewise that he was fully authorized to receive any proposals from England and that France having the worst of the quarrel could not make the first proposals that he had opened himself to me as far as could be expected at first, 
but that as I had taken no notice of him since, they imagined England went back. I won't pretend to draw any other conclusion from all this, except that they seem still cramped with the unnatural connection of Vienna, which the Duc de Choisille has still credit enough to support, and consequently, as long as that prevails, we cannot expect anything but chicanes and delays in the negotiations. They have been repeatedly told that His Majesty cannot and will not treat but in conjunction with his ally. The King of Prussia is to be excluded from whence it is reasonable to conclude that they will try their chance in war once more. Though, those who govern seem inclined to keep the door open for coming back if necessary. I have the honor to be, etc. Joseph York. In some of the correspondence, there are long passages in cipher, numerals, to which there is no key for the public. It is impossible, therefore, to know whether the written words contain the exact meaning or not. Space will not permit the whole correspondence to appear, so we must pass on to a letter from Lord Holderness to Mr. Mitchell, the English envoy in Prussia. The Earl of Holderness, our 17th May at Missen, by a Prussian messenger, Whitehall, May 6th, 1760. Sir, you will have learnt by several of my late letters all that has passed between General York and Count St. Germain at The Hague and I am persuaded General York will not have failed to inform you as well of the formal disavowal he has met with from Monsieur de Choisil, as of his resolution to come to England in order to avoid the further resentment of the French minister. Accordingly, he arrived here some days ago. But as it was evident that he was not authorized even by that part of the French ministry in whose name he pretended to talk as his sejourn here, could be of no use and might be attended by disagreeable consequences, it was thought proper to seize him upon his arrival here. His examination has produced nothing very material, his conduct and language are artful, with an odd mixture which is difficult to define. Upon the whole, it has been thought most advisable not to suffer him to remain in England, and he set out accordingly on Saturday morning last with an intention to take shelter in some parts of his Prussian Majesty's dominions doubting whether he would be safe in Holland. At his earnest and repeated request, he saw Baron Nipphausen during his confinement, but none of the king's servants saw him. The king thought it right you should be informed of this transaction. It is the king's pleasure you should communicate the substance of this letter to his Prussian majesty. I am, with great truth and regard, sir, your most obedient and humble servant, Holderness. Mr. Mitchell. There is a mystery about this visit of Monsieur de Saint-Germain to England which is not solved by the letter of Lord Holderness. Even if he did leave at once, his return must have been almost immediate since the newspapers and magazines of the period comment on his arrival in May and June 1760. In the London Chronicle, June 3, 1760, there is a long account of his arrival in England, speaking of him in favorable terms. There are hints to be found in various places that he did not really leave, but so far the actual facts of what occurred are not quite clear. There is more yet to be learned in this curious byway of European politics. Peace appears more difficult to arrange than war, and the personal desires of the French ministers blocked the way of this mission. Difficult indeed must have been the undertaking for the Comte de Saint-Germain and thankless the work, at every turn he met opposition and could not count on support. 
All this forms a deeply interesting study, but we must now pass on to the mystical and philosophical side of this little understood life. Chapter 7 Masonic Tradition Poems said to be written by Monsieur de Saint-Germain Freemasonry and Mystic Societies Charges Against Monsieur de Saint-Germain Refuted by Mounier Documents relative to his death in 1784 Church records met by the Comte de Chalon in Venice in 1788 Attending Masonic meetings in 1783 Seen by the Countess Dadimar in 1804 and 1822. Sonnet Philosophique The following is written in French here, translated to English. Attributed to the famous Saint Germain. Curious scrutineer of all nature's realm, I've known the principle and the end of the grand whole. I've seen gold and potential within its mine. I've grasped its matter and surprised its ferment. I explained by what art the soul within a mother's womb builds its home, carries its forth, and how a seed placed against a grain of wheat beneath the damp earth, one plants and the other vine, become bread and wine. Nothing existed. God willed it. Nothing became something. I doubted. I sought on what the universe rests. Nothing maintained balance and served as support. Finally, with the weight of praise and blame, I weighed the eternal. It called my soul. I died. I adored. I knew nothing more. Only a mystic could write, and none but the mystics can gauge, words so potent in their meaning, treating as they do of those great mysteries that are unfolded in their entirety only to the initiated. The veil of Isis ever hides the earnest student of the great science from the vulgarly curious. Hence, in approaching the philosophic and mystic side of this mysterious life, the difficulties of research become even more complicated by reason of that veil which hides this initiate from the outer world. Glimpses of knowledge rare among men, indications of forces unknown to the general, a few earnest students, his pupils, striving their utmost to permeate the material world with their knowledge of the unseen spiritual life. Such are the signs that surround the Comte de Saint-Germain, the evidences of his connection with that great center from which he came. No startling public movement springs up, nothing in which he courts the public gaze as leader, although in many societies his guiding hand may be found. In modern Freemasonry literature, the effort is made to eliminate his name, and even, in some instances, to assert that he had no real part in the Masonic movement of the last century, and was regarded only as a charlatan by leading Masons. Careful research, however, into the Masonic archives proves this to be untrue. Indeed, the exact contrary can be shown. For Monsieur de Saint-Germain was one of the selected representatives of the French Masons at their great convention at Paris in 1785. As one account says, The Germans who distinguished themselves on this occasion were Bade, von Dahlberg, Forster, Duke Ferdinand of Brunswick, Baron de Glichen, Russworm and Volner, Levater, Ludwig Prince of Hesse, Roskampf, Stork, Theden von Wachter, the French were honorably represented by Saint-Germain, Saint-Martin, Touzet du Chanteau, Etelia, Mesmer, Dutrasset, 
Derekot, and Cagliostro. The same category of names, but with more detail, is given by N. Deschamps. We find Deschamps speaking of Monsieur de Saint-Germain as one of the Templars. An account is also given of the initiation of Cagliostro by the Comte de Saint-Germain, and the ritual used on this occasion is said to have been that of the Knights Templar. It was in this year also that a group of Jesuits brought the wildest and most disgraceful accusations against Monsieur de Saint-Germain, Monsieur de Saint-Martin, and many others. Accusations of immorality, infidelity, anarchy, etc. The charges were leveled at the Philolathians, or Right de Philolathies, ou Chécheur de la Verite, founded 1773 in the Masonic Lodge of Les Amis Réunis, Prince Carl of Hesse, Sabalette de Lang, the royal treasurer, and Vicomte de Travan, Count de Gabelin, and all the really mystic students of the time were in this order. The Abbe Beruel indicted the whole body individually and collectively in terms so violent and on charges so unfounded that even non-Masons and anti-mystics protested. He accused Monsieur de Saint-Germain and his followers of being Jacobins, of fomenting and inciting the revolution, of atheism and immorality. These charges were carefully investigated and rejected as worthless by J.J. Monnier, a writer who was neither mystic nor Mason, but only a lover of honest dealing. Monnier says, There are accusations so atrocious that before adopting them, a just man must seek the most authentic testimony. He who fares not to publish them without being in the position to give decided proofs should be severely punished by law and where the law fails by all right-minded people. Such is the procedure adopted by M. Baruel against the society that used to meet at Hermanneville after the death of Jean-Jacques Rousseau under the direction of the charlatan Saint-Germain. This view appears to be well corroborated and is upheld by various writers. In fact, the proof is conclusive that Monsieur de Saint-Germain had nothing to do with the Jacobin party, as the Abbey Barrowell and the Abbey Minya have tried to insist. Another writer says, At this time Catholic lodges were formed in Paris, their protectors were the Marquis de Giradin and Marquis de Bouillet. Several lodges were held at Hermanville, the property of the first named. Their chief aim was... It is written in French here, translated to English, it says, to establish communication between God and man through intermediary beings. Now both the Marquis de Giradon and the Marquis de Bouillet were staunch royalists and Catholics. It was the latter, moreover, who aided the unhappy Louis XVI and his family in their attempted escape. Again, both of these Catholic nobles were personal friends of Monsieur de Saint-Germain. Hence, it hardly appears possible that the assertions of the Abbey Barrowell and Minier had any voracious foundation, since the establishing of Catholic lodges certainly does not appear atheistical in tendency, nor the close friendship of true royalists alarmingly revolutionary. According to the well-known writer Eliphas Levi, Monsieur de Saint-Germain was a Catholic in outward religious observance. Although he was the founder of the Order of St. Joachim in Bohemia, he separated himself from this society as soon as revolutionary theories began to spread among its members. Some of the assemblies in which the Comte de Saint-Germain taught his philosophy were held in the Rue Platière. Other meetings of the Philadettes were held in the Lodge 
Dami Huruni in the Rue de Sordier. According to some writers, there was a strong Rosicrucian foundation from the true Rosicrucian tradition in this lodge. It appears that the members were studying the conditions of life on higher planes, just as theosophists of today are doing. Practical occultism and spiritual mysticism were the end and aim of the Philolathians, but alas, the karma of France overwhelmed them, and scenes of bloodshed and violence swept them and their peaceful studies away. A fact that disturbed the enemies of the Comte de Saint-Germain was the personal devotion of his friends, and that these friends treasured his portrait. In the Duff collection, in 1783, was a picture of the mystic engraved on copper with the inscription, the Comte de Saint-Germain, celebrated alchemist, followed by the words, written in French, translated to English here, Just like Prometheus, he stole the fire, by whom the world exists and by whom all breathes. Nature obeys and dies at his command. If he is not God himself, a powerful God inspires him. This copper plate engraving was dedicated to the Comte de Milly, an intimate friend of Monsieur de Saint-Germain, a well-known man of the period, and Chevalier de l'Ordre Royal at Militaire de Saint-Louis, a délégué rouge de Brunswick. This unlucky portrait, however, produced a furious attack from Dr. Beister, the editor of the Berlinisch Monastrift in June 1785. Amongst some amusing diatribes, the following is worthy of notice, if only to show how inaccurate an angry editor can be. As we have already seen, Monsieur de Saint-Germain was in the year 1785 chosen representative at the Masonic Conference in Paris. Nevertheless, Herr Dr. Beister, in the same year, opens his remarks with the astonishing statement, This adventurer who died two years ago in Danish Holstein our editor then proceeds to clinch the argument as follows. I even know that, though he is dead, many now believe that he is still living and will soon come forth alive, whereas he is dead as a doornail, probably moldering and rotting as an ordinary man who cannot work miracles and whom no prince has ever greeted. Ignorance alone must excuse our editor from the charge of being a literary ananius. But indeed, in our own days, critics of matters occult are just as ignorant and equally positive as they were a century ago, no matter what they're learning in other respects. And indeed, there was some justification for the statements of Herr Dr. Beister, for a more recent writer says, The Church Register of Eckenford shows St. Germain died on February 27, 1784, in this town in whose church he was entombed quite privately on March 2nd. In the Church Register we read as follows, Deceased on February 27th, buried on March 2nd, 1784, the so-called Comte de Saint-Germain, and Wilden, further information not known, privately deposited in this church. In the church accounts, it is said, on March 1st, for the here-deceased Comte de Saint-Germain, a tomb in the Nicolai Church, here in the burial place, sub N, 1, 30 years, time of decay, 10 RTHLR and for opening of the same two RTHLR in all 12 RTHLR. Tradition tells that the landgrave afterwards got St. Germain buried in Schleswig in the Friedrichsburg churchyard there in order to consult his ghost in late hours of the night. On the 3rd of April, the mayor and the council of Ecknerford gave legal notice concerning his estate. In that, it is said, as the Comte 
the Saint-Germain, known abroad as also here under the name of Con, the Saint-Germain and Velden, who during the last four years has been living in this country, died recently here in Eckernford. His effects have been legally sealed, and it has been found necessary as well to his eventual interstate heirs, as until now nothing has been ascertained concerning a left will, etc. Therefore, all creditors are called upon to come forward with their claims on October 14th. This passage shows definitely that Monsieur de Saint-Germain was well known under the name of Velden. It is written in very many different ways. But, as to the death, we have much evidence that he did not die, Madame Dadamar says, speaking of Monsieur de Saint-Germain. He is believed to have deceased in 1784 at Schleswig, when with the elector of Hesse-Cassel, the Count de Chalon, however, on returning from his Venetian embassy in 1788, told me of his having spoken to the Count de Saint-Germain in the Place de Saint-Marc the day before he left Venice to go on an embassy to Portugal. I saw him again on one other occasion. And again, from a Masonic source, we get the following statement. Amongst the Freemasons invited to the Great Conference at Willemsbad, 15th February 1785, we find St. Germain included with St. Martin and many others. And again, from a thoroughly Catholic source, the late librarian of the Great Ambrosiana Library at Milan says, and when, in order to bring about a conciliation between the various sects of the Rosicrucians, the Necromantists, the Kabbalists, the Illuminati, the Humanitarians, there was held a great congress at Willemsbad, then in the lodge of the Amici Rioniti. There also was Cagliostro with St. Martin, Mesmer, and St. Germain. Evidence there is on both sides, and church records are not always infallible. How many a cause celebre has arisen from a fictitious death? If the Comte de Saint-Germain wishes to disappear from public life, this was the best way to accomplish his wish. Chapter 8 Masonic Work and Austrian Traditions Monsieur de Saint-Germain in Vienna, meeting with Mesmer, meeting at Fettelhof, Predicts his retirement from Europe. Recent articles on Monsieur de Saint-Germain in Vienna. Correspondence with Duke Ferdinand von Braunschweig under the name of Comte Veldun. Passing now from France to Austria, let us see what Graffer says in his interesting, though curiously written sketches. To give, then, a few extracts out of many. Saint-Germain and Mesmer. An unknown man has come on a short visit to Vienna, but his sojourn there extended itself. His affairs had reference to a far-off time, namely the 20th century. He had really come to Vienna to see one person only. This person was Mesmer, still a very young man. Mesmer was struck by the appearance of the stranger. You must be the man, said he, whose anonymous letter I received yesterday from The Hague. I am he. You wish to speak with me today, at this hour, on my ideas concerning magnetism. I wish to do so. It was the man who had just left me, who in a fatherly way has guided my ideas in this channel. He is the celebrated astronomer Hell. I know it. My fundamental ideas, however, are still chaotic. Who can give me light? 
I can do so. You would make me happy, sir. I have to do so. The stranger motioned Mesmer to lock the door. They sat down. The kernel of their conversation centered round the theory of obtaining the elements of the elixir of life by the employment of magnetism in a series of permutations. The conference lasted three hours. They arranged a further meeting in Paris, then they parted. That Saint Germain and Mesmer were connected in the mystical work of the last century we know from other sources, and that they again met and worked together in Paris is verified by research among the records of the Lodge meetings already mentioned. This meeting in Vienna must have taken place before Mesmer began his work in Paris, judging by the context. Vienna was the great center for the Rosicrucians and other allied societies, such as Asiatische Bruder, the Ritter des Leaks, etc. The former were the largest body who really occupied themselves deeply with alchemical researches and had their laboratory in the Landstrauss, behind the hospital. Among them we find a group of St. Germain's followers. To quote Franz Graffer again, One day the report was spread that Comte de Saint-Germain, the most enigmatical of all incomprehensibles, was in Vienna. An electric shock passed through all who knew his name. Our adept circle was thrilled through and through. St. Germain was in Vienna. Barely had Graffer, his brother Rudolf, recovered from the surprising news. Then he flies to Hinneberg, his country seat where he has his papers. Among these is to be found a letter of recommendation from Casanova, the genial adventurer whom he got to know in Amsterdam, addressed to St. Germain. He hurries back to his house of business. There he is informed by the clerk. An hour ago, a gentleman has been here, whose appearance has astonished us all. This gentleman was neither tall nor short. His build was strikingly proportionate. Everything about him had the stamp of nobility. He said in French, as if it were to himself, not troubling about anyone's presence, the words, I live in Fettelhof, the room in which Leibniz lodged in 1713. We were about to speak when he was already gone. The last hour we have been, as you see, sir, petrified. In five minutes, Fettelhof is reached. Leibniz's room is empty. Nobody knows when the American gentleman will return home. As to luggage, nothing is to be seen but a small iron chest. It is almost dinner time, but who would think of dining? Graffer is mechanically urged to go and find Baron Linden. He finds him at the Anta. They drive to the Landstrasse, whither a certain something, an obscure presentiment, impels them to drive post-haste. The laboratory is unlocked. A simultaneous cry of astonishment escapes both. At a table is seated St. Germain, calmly reading a folio which is a work of Paracelsus. They stand dumb at the threshold. The mysterious intruder slowly closes the book and slowly rises. Well known to the two perplexed men that this apparition can be no other in the world than the man of wonders. The description of the clerk was as a shadow against a reality. It was as if a bright splendor enveloped his whole form. Dignity and sovereignty declared themselves. The men were speechless. The Count steps forward to meet them. They enter and measure tones without formality, but in an indescribably ringing tenor, charming the innermost soul. He says in French to Graffer, You have a letter of introduction from Herr von Signal, but it is not needed. This gentleman is Baron Linden. I knew that you would both be here at this moment, 
You have another letter for me from Brule. But the painter is not to be saved. His lung is gone. He will die July 8th, 1805. A man who is still a child called Buonaparte will be indirectly to blame. And now, gentlemen, I know of your doings. Can I be of any service to you? Speak. But speech was not possible. Linden laid a small table, took confectionery from a cupboard in the wall, placed it before him, and went into the cellar. The Count signs to Grafford to sit down, seats himself, and says, I knew your friend Linden would retire. He was compelled. I will serve you alone. I know you through Angelo Suleiman, to whom I was able to render service in Africa. If Linden comes, I will send him away again. Graffer recovered himself. He was, however, too overwhelmed to respond more than with the words, I understand you. I have a presentiment. Meanwhile, Linden returns and places two bottles on the table. St. Germain smiles thereat with an indescribable dignity. Linden offers him refreshment. The Count's smile increases to a laugh. I ask you, said he, is there any soul on this earth who has ever seen me eat or drink? He points to the bottles and remarks, This today is not direct from Hungary. It comes from my friend Catherine of Russia. She was so well pleased with the sick man's paintings of the engagement at Modeling that she sent a cask of the same. Graffer and Linden were astounded. The wine had been bought from Casanova. The Count asked for writing materials. Linden brought them. The Wundermann cuts from a sheet of paper two quarters of the sheet, places them quite close to each other, and seizes a pen with either hand simultaneously. He writes with both, half a page, signs alike, and says, You collect autographs, sir? Choose one of these sheets. It is a matter of indifference which. The content is the same. No, it is magic, exclaimed both friends. Stroke for stroke. Both handwritings agree no trace of difference unheard of. The writer smiles, places both sheets on one another, holds them up against the window pane. It seems as if there were only one writing to be seen, so exactly as one the facsimile of the other. They appear as if they were impressions from the same copper plate. The witnesses were struck dumb. The Count then said, One of these sheets I wish delivered to Angelo as quickly as possible. In a quarter of an hour he is going out with Prince Lichtenstein. The bearer will receive a little box. St. Germain then gradually passed into a solemn mood. For a few seconds he became rigid as a statue. His eyes, which were always expressive beyond words, became dull and colorless. Presently, however, his whole being became reanimated. He made a movement with his hand as if in signal of his departure, and then said, I am leaving. Ixhid, do not visit me. Once again, will you see me? Tomorrow night, I'm off. I am much needed in Constantinople. Then, in England, there to prepare two inventions which you will have in the next century. Trains and steamboats, these will be needed in Germany. The seasons will gradually change. First the spring, then the summer. It is the gradual cessation of time itself, as the announcement of the end of the cycle. I see it all. Astrologers and meteorologists know nothing. Believe me, one needs to have studied in the pyramids as I have studied. 
Towards the end of this century, I shall disappear out of Europe and betake myself to the region of the Himalayas. I will rest. I must rest. Exactly in eighty-five years will people again set eyes on me. Farewell. I love you. After these solemnly uttered words, the Count repeated the sign with his hand. The two adepts, overpowered by the force of such unprecedented impressions, left the room in a condition of complete stupefaction. In the same moment, there fell a sudden heavy shower, accompanied by a peal of thunder. Instinctively, they returned to the laboratory for shelter. They opened the door. St. Germain is no more there. Here, continues Graffer, my story ends. It is from memory throughout. A peculiar, irresistible feeling has compelled me to set down these transactions in writing once more, after so long a time. Just today, June 15th, 1843. Further, I make this remark that these events have not been hitherto reported, so herewith do I take my leave. The curious character of Franz Graffer's sketches is striking. From other sources, it can be learned that both of these Graffers were personal friends of St. Germain. Both were also Rosicrucians. And though no date is given of the interview here recorded, we can deduce it approximately from another article in the same volume, where it is said, St. Germain was in the year 88 or 89 or 90 in Vienna, where we had the never-to-be-forgotten honor of meeting him. That the Comte de St. Germain was also a Rosicrucian, there is no doubt. Constantly in the Masonic and mystic literature of the last century, the evidences are found of his intimacy with the prominent Rosicrucians in Hungary and Austria. This mystic body originally sprang up in the Central European states. It has, at various times and through different organizations, spread the sacred science and knowledge with which some of its heads were entrusted. The same message from the one great lodge which guides the spiritual evolution of the human race. Traces of this teaching, as given by our mystic, are clearly found, and are quoted by Madame Blavatsky, who mentions a cipher Rosicrucian manuscript as being in his possession. She emphasizes also the entirely Eastern tone of the views held by Monsieur de Saint-Germain. The fact that Monsieur de Saint-Germain possesses this rare work shows the position held by him. Turning again to the secret doctrine, we find his teaching on numbers and their values, and this important passage links him again with the Pythagorean school, whose tenets were purely Eastern. Such passages are of deep interest to the student, for they prove the unity which underlies all the outward diversity of the main societies working under different names, yet with so much in common. On the surface, it would appear that better results might have been attained had all these small bodies been welded into one large society. But in studying the history of the 18th century, the reason is evident. In Austria, Italy, and France, the Jesuits were all-powerful and crushed out any body of people who showed signs of occult knowledge. Germany was at war. England also at war. Any large masses of students would certainly have been suspected of political designs. The various small organizations were safer, and it is evident that Monsieur de Saint-Germain went from one society to another, guiding and teaching. Of his constant connection with the Masonic circles, we have other proofs. Bjornstahl writes in his books of travels, We were guests at the court of the Prince Hereditary Wilhelm von Hessen Castle, brother of Karl von Hessen, at Hanau, near Frankfurt. 
As we returned on the 21st of May, 1774, to the castle of Hanau, we found there Lord Cavendish and the Comte de Saint-Germain. They had come from Lausanne and were traveling to Castle and Berlin. We had made the acquaintance of these gentlemen in Lausanne at the house of Broglio. This is a most interesting statement, for it shows also the continued intercourse of Monsieur de Saint-Germain with the Bentinck family, with whom he had so much intercourse in 1760 at The Hague. A Masonic friend sends me the following information and extracts of letters drawn from Masonic sources in the Royal Library in Wolfenbüttel. He says, With this post I send you a photo of the letter from Count de Veldun to the Duke Friedrich, August of Braunschweig, nephew of Ferdinand of Braunschweig, and also from Frederick II of Prussia, his uncle. Dr. K. Weber in From Four Centuries writes, volume 1, page 317, In October 1776 he came to Leipzig, as V. Veldun, where he offered many secrets for the use of the town council that he had gathered together during his travels in Egypt and Asia. The letter from Veldun is in the Wolfenbüttel Library, not in the archives. There I found various other remarkable letters. All are from and to Freemasons, among others one from Dubosk, Chamberlain in Leipzig, who on the 15th of March 1777 wrote to Friedrich August of Brunswick. After a mysterious stay, the actual Saint Germain, known at the time under the name of Comte Veldun, well done, who took great care to give us to understand that he hid under his name his true quality of Prince Rakosi, took a fancy to associate with me. From the minister V. Vorm, Dresden, on the 19th of May, 1777, from Dresden, I employed the fortnight I spent in Leipzig to feel the pulse of the famous Saint Germain, who at the present time has taken the name of Comte de Veldun, and besides, at my request, he came here to stay some time. I found him between sixty and seventy years old. The original letter of Monsieur de Saint-Germain has been photographed, and the translation is as follows, written from Leipzig. It has already been shown that by the church records he had a right to his name and was known and acknowledged as Comte de Valdun. Monseigneur, will your highness kindly permit me that I open my heart to you? I am hurt that the counselor, Mr. Dubosc, used means which could not be agreeable to me to make me known the orders you have entrusted him with, according to what he says in his letter, and which surely could by no means concern me. The Baron de Vorm, as well as the Baron de Bishop's Werder, will always be honorable witnesses to the rectitude and uprightness of the step I have taken, which was rendered necessary by the respect and the zealous and faithful attachment which I have dedicated to you for my whole life, Monseigneur. The delicacy enjoined me at first to say nothing about my motive. I will hasten as much as possible to carry out the affairs both important and indispensable for the locality I am in, in order that I may immediately afterwards have the inexpressible joy of paying my court to you, the best of princes, when I shall have the honor of being well known to you, Monseigneur. I expect with full certitude from your fine discernment all that justice which is due to me and which will be extremely appreciated by me coming from your part. I am in duty bound. 
your respectful, faithful, and humble servant, Lassie de Valdun. Leipzig, May 8, 1777. More evidence of this visit is found in a letter from the Saxon minister von Wurm, who was himself an earnest Mason and a Rosicrucian. Correspondence of the prior ill with the minister Wurm, O.D. Friedrich de Sepulcro, Germain, June 3, 1777. The Asinter Gugamos has most certainly not gone to Cyprus, but to England. Monsieur de Saint-Germain, chiefly on my account, has come to Dresden. If he does not disguise himself in an extraordinary manner, then he will not suit us, although he is a very wise man. Evidently, a visit was expected which had to be disguised. This gives a clue to the reason why Monsieur de Saint-Germain was traveling in Leipzig and Dresden under the name of Comte Vildun. According to Cadet de Gassicou, he was traveling member for the Templars going from lodge to lodge to establish communication between them. Monsieur de Saint-Germain is said to have done this work for the Paris chapter of the Knights Templar. Investigation proves him to have been connected with the Asiatische Brüder, or the Knights of Saint John the Evangelist from the Eastern Europe. Also, the Ritter des Leaks, or Knights of Light, and with various other Rosicrucian bodies in Austria and Hungary and also with the Martinists in Paris. He founded, according to Eliphas Levi, the Order of St. Joachim, but this statement is not supported by any historical evidence at present forthcoming, though many of his students and friends were members of this body. Everywhere and every order where real mystic teaching is to be found can we trace the influence of this mysterious teacher. A letter of his to the Graf Gortz at Weimar is quoted, saying that he had promised a visit to Hanau to meet the Landgraf Karl at his brother's house in order to work out with him the system of strict observance, the regeneration of the order of Freemasons in the aristocratic mind, for which you also so earnestly interest yourself. A summarized account from the Gartenlaub fits in here. The letters are said to be authentic. And from internal evidence, there is little doubt about it, for the information has to do with the Masonic work on which the Comte de Saint-Germain was engaged. Karl August went to the Landgrave Adolf von Hessen, Philippsthal, Barchfeld. Saint-Germain was there and was duly presented to the Duke, was charming in conversation, and the latter asked, after supper, his host about the Count. How old is he? We do not know anything sure about it. It is a fact that the Count knows details which only contemporaneous could tell in the same way. It is a fashion now in Castle to listen respectively to his stories and to be astonished about nothing. The Count does not praise himself, neither is he an importune talk-teller. He is a man of good society whom everyone is glad to have. He is not much liked by the head of our house, Landgraf Frederick II, who calls him a tiresome moralist. But he is in connection with many remarkable men and has an extraordinary influence upon others. My cousin, Landgrave Karl of Hesse, is much attached to him. They work together in Freemasonry and other dark sciences. Levator sends him chosen men. He can speak in different voices and from different distances, can copy any hand he sees once, perfectly. He is said to be in connection with spirits who obey him. He is a physician, a geognost and is reported to have means to lengthen life. 
The Duke went to Gortz, whom he knew well to be an enemy and opponent of Goethe. Therefore, in this moment of excitement, he took the part of the marshal. Gortz received the rare visit in a submissive way, when from slight hints he could notice that the Duke was not desirous to speak about Goethe. His countenance was still more brightened. At the beginning of May, dear Marshal, I made a highly interesting acquaintance at the Landgraves in Barchfeld, said finally the Duke, not without embarrassment, an acquaintance which I wished to keep up. It was a certain Comte Saint-Germain, who was staying at Cassel. Please write to this gentleman and invite him courteously to come over here. Gortz promised to meet this request within the shortest time and to the best of visibility. When the Duke had gone away, he sat down to his writing table and wrote as follows. Letter of Count Gortz. Triumph, dear Count. Your knowledge of men, your addresses, conquer. You have foretold well. Our gracious master is enchanted with you and asks you hereby in due form through me to come to his court. You are really a wonder-worker for his detested plebeian favorite now totters. A little help, one stroke of your genius, and the advocate of Frankfurt who intrudes upon us is checkmated. Will you fight him openly now, or do you prefer to make first an incognito personal survey of the territory? Put down one or two mines for him and show yourself only when he is totally beaten out of the field, and then take his place with far more right and power? I leave all this to your sagacity. Rely upon me as before entirely, and a small elite of faithful aristocrats, one or two of which you may wish to bind closer to you if you think it good. Always yours truly. Count Gortz, Marshal of Court. St. Germain's Answer Dear Count, I am quite ready to associate further with you and your companions in opinion, very grateful for the complacent invitation. I will follow it later on. In the present moment, I have promised to visit Hanau, to meet the Landgrave Karl at his brother's, and work out with him the system of the strict observance, the regeneration of the order of Freemasons in an aristocratic sense, which interests you too so much. The Landgrave is to me a dear and sympathetic protector, and if not a prince regnant, his position in Schleswig, attached to Danish service, is very princely. I will, by all means, before I decide quite for the Landgrave, come to Weimar, liberate you from the hated intruder, and recognize the field there. Maybe I will prefer to do incognito at first. Recommend me faithfully to your master and promise my visit for some time to come. In the name of prudence, silence, and wisdom, I salute you. Yours, St. Germain. From internal evidence, this is an authentic letter, for the Comte de Saint-Germain would certainly have been helping in this body, based as it was on the old order of the temple, which will be treated at length later on. It was, moreover, to save themselves from persecution that these members called themselves free and adopted masons, and adopted the signs and words of masonry. Undoubtedly, the strict observance sprang from the most secret order of the temple, a truly occult organization in the olden time. At the suggestion of the Comte de Saint-Martin and Monsieur Willemos, the name was changed because of his suspicions of the police. The new one chosen was the Beneficent Knights of the Holy City. Baron von Hund was the first Grand Master. On his death, the general leadership was vested in the Grand Duke of Brunswick, 
an intimate friend of Monsieur de Saint-Germain. All these various organizations will be dealt with in order. At present, they are merely mentioned to show the connecting link formed by Monsieur de Saint-Germain between the separate bodies, with whom Monsieur de Saint-Germain had work to do. An Austrian writer in a recent article says, In the Masonic and Rosicrucian literature, one often finds hints as to the relations of Saint-Germain to the secret societies of Austria. One of Saint-Germain's adherents in Vienna was Count J.F. von Kufstein, in whose lodge in the house of Prince Auersberg, magical meetings were held which generally lasted from 11 p.m. to 6 a.m. Saint-Germain was present at one such meeting and expressed his satisfaction with the workings. Saint-Germain collected old pictures and portraits. He was addicted to alchemy, believed in universal medicine, and made studies as to animal magnetism. He impressed people, especially the higher classes, by his French manners, his wide knowledge, and his talkativeness. This bohemian, so much attacked by historians, played the part of a political agent during the peace negotiations between France and Austria. Again, he is said to have distinguished himself in the year 1792 in the Revolution. He was the Obermoor of many mystic brotherhoods where he was worshipped as a superior being and where everyone believed in his sudden appearances and equally sudden disappearances. He belongs to the picture of old Vienna with its social mysteriousness, where it was swarming with Rosicrucians, Asiatics, Illuminates, Alchemists, Magnetopaths, Thaumaturgs, Templars, who all of them had many and willing adherents. Dr. Mesmer, who knew the Comte de Saint-Germain, well from his stay in Paris, requested him to come to Vienna in order that he might pursue his study of animal magnetism with him. Saint-Germain stayed secretly here and was then known as the American of the Felderhof, which latter became later on Lazia House in the Lugek North Three. Dr. Mesmer was much helped by the Count, and here in Vienna his Mesmer's teaching was written down. Soon Mesmer gained followers, but he was obliged to leave the town. He went to Paris, where his harmonious society, a secret society of savants, continued to exist. In Vienna, St. Germain came in touch with many mystagogues. He visited the famous laboratory of the Rosicrucians in the Landstrasse behind the hospital, where he instructed for some time his brethren in the sciences of Solomon. The Landstrasse, situated on the outskirts of Vienna, was for many centuries a region of spooks. Below in the Erdberg, the Templars and the estates of their order, and outside town in the Simmering, there was in the times of Rudolf II the Gold Kitchen, where the eccentric fraternity endeavored to make gold. It is certain that the Comte de Saint-Germain has been in Vienna in the year 1735 and also later. The arrival of the Count, who enjoyed at that time a great prestige, at once created a great sensation in the initiated circles. The following is a list of some of the societies more or less connected with masonry, which had unknown heads. Translated, they are as follows. The Canons of the Holy Sepulchre, the Canons of the Holy Temple of Jerusalem, the Beneficent Knights of the Holy City, the Clergy of Nicosia in the island of Cyprus, the clergy of Auvergne, the Knights of Providence, the Asiatic Brothers, Knights of St. John the Evangelist, the Knights of Light, the African Brothers. Then there are groups of various Rosicrucian bodies widely spread in Hungary and Bohemia. 
and all of these bodies enumerated can be traced clearly the guiding hand of that messenger of the 18th century, or of some of his immediate friends and followers. Again, in all of these groups can be found more or less clearly those fundamental principles which all of the true messengers of the Great Lodge are bound to teach, such, for instance, as the evolution of the spiritual nature of man, reincarnation, the hidden powers of nature, purity of life, nobleness of ideal, the divine power that is behind all and guides all. These are the clues which show without possibility of doubt to those who search for truth. That lodge whence came the Comte de Saint-Germain, the messenger whose life is here but roughly sketched. His work was to lead a portion of the 18th century humanity to that same goal, which now, at the end of the 19th century, again stands clear before the eyes of some theosophists. From his message, many turned away in scorn, and from the present leaders, the blind ones will today turn away also in scorn. But the few whose eyes are open to the glad light of a spiritual knowledge Look back to him who bore the burden in the last century with gratitude profound. The End Thank you for listening to the Comte de Saint-Germain, The Secret of Kings, Monograph, by Isabel Cooper Oakley, read to you by Graham Dunlop. This has been an Adult Brain audiobook production. For more titles like this, please visit adultbrain.ca.